0: Today I spoke with Anil Seth. He is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex and founding co-director of the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science. And he's focused on the, the biological basis of consciousness and is studying it in a very multidisciplinary way, bringing neuroscience and mathematics and artificial intelligence and computer science psychology, philosophy, psychiatry, all these disciplines together in his lab. Uh, He is the editor-in-chief of the academic journal Neuroscience of Consciousness, published by Oxford University Press, and he has published more than 100 research papers in a variety of fields. His background is in natural sciences and computer science and AI. And he also did postdoctoral research for five years at the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego under Gerald Edelman, the Nobel Laureate. And we cover a lot of ground here. We really get into consciousness in all its aspects. We start with the hard problem, then talk about where consciousness might emerge in nature. Talk about levels of consciousness, anesthesia, sleep, dreams, the waking state. We talk about perception as a controlled hallucination, different notions of the self, conscious AI, many things here. I found it all fascinating, and I hope you do as well. And so, without further delay, I bring you Anil Seth. I am here with Anil Seth. Anil, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
0: So, um... I think I first discovered you, I believe I'd seen your name associated with various papers, but I I think I first discovered you the way many people had after your TED Talk. You gave a much-loved TED Talk. Perhaps you can briefly describe your scientific and intellectual background.
1: It's quite a varied background, actually. I mean, I think my intellectual interest has always been in understanding the physical and biological basis of consciousness and what, practical implications that might have in neurology and psychiatry. Uh, but you know, when I was a, an undergrad student at Cambridge in the early 1990s, consciousness was st- certainly as a student then, and then in, in a place like Cambridge, not a thing you could study scientifically. It was still very much a domain of philosophy. And I was still, at that time, I still had this kind of idea that, that physics was going to be the, the way to solve every problem every difficult problem in science and philosophy. So I started off studying physics. But then through the undergrad years, I got diverted towards psychology as more of a a direct route to these these issues of great interest. and ended up graduating with a degree in experimental psychology. After that, I moved to Sussex University, where I am now actually, again, uh, to do a master's and a PhD in computer science and AI. And this was partly uh, because of the, the need, I felt, the time to move beyond these box and arrow models of cognition that were so dominating psychology and, and cognitive science in the 90s towards something that had more explanatory power and the rise of connectionism and all these, these new methods and, and tools in AI seemed to provide that. So I stayed at Sussex and, and did a PhD actually in an area which is now called artificial life. And I became quite diverted, actually ended up doing a lot of stuff in ecological modeling and thinking a lot more here about how brains, bodies and environments interact and co-construct cognitive processes. But I'd sort of left consciousness behind a little bit then. And so when I finished my PhD in 2000, I went to San Diego to the Neuroscience Institute to work with Gerald Edelman, because certainly then San Diego was one of the few places Certainly, that I knew of at the time, that you could legitimately study consciousness and work on the neural basis of consciousness. Edelman was there, Francis Crick was across the road at the, the Salk Institute. People were really doing this stuff there. So I stayed there for about six years and finally started working on consciousness, but bringing together all these different, you know, different traditions of, of math, physics, computer science, um, as well as the tools of cognitive neuroscience. And then for the last 10 years, I've been back at, at Sussex where I've been running a lab and it's uh it's called the sackler center for consciousness science and it's one of the the growing number of labs that are explicitly dedicated to solving or studying at least the brain and biological basis of consciousness
0: yeah well that's a wonderful pedigree i've heard stories and i never met edelman i've read his books and i'm familiar with his work on consciousness but he was famously a Titanic ego, if I'm not mistaken. I, I don't want you to say anything you're not comfortable with, but everyone who I've ever heard have an encounter with Edelman was just amazed at how much space he personally took up in the conversation.
1: I've heard that too, and I think you know, there's there's some truth to that. What, what I can say from the other side is that when I worked for him and, and with him, you know, firstly it was it was an incredible experience, and I felt very lucky to have that experience because he you know, he had a large ego, but he also knew a lot too. I mean, he He really had been around and had contributed to major revolutions in biology and in neuroscience. But he treated the people he worked with, I think, often very kindly. And and, uh, one of the things that was very clear in San Diego at the time, he didn't go outside of the the Neurosciences Institute that much. It was very much his empire. But when you were within it, you got a lot of his time. So I remember many occasions just being in the office and most days I would, be called down for a discussion with Edelman about this subject or that subject or this new paper or that new paper. And that was a very instructive experience for me. I know he was quite difficult in many interviews and conversations outside the NSI, um, which is a shame, I think, it it, because his legacy really is pretty extraordinary. I'm sure we'll get onto this later, but one of the other reasons I went there was, one of the main reasons I went there was because I'd read some of the early work on dynamic core theory. Which has later become Giulio Tononi's very prominent integrated information theory. And I was under the impression that Giulio Tononi was still going to be there when I got there in 2001, but he hadn't. He'd he left. And he wasn't really speaking much with Edelman at the time, and you know, it was a shame that they didn't continue their interaction. And you know, when we tried to organize a, a Festschrift, a few of us for Edelman um, some years ago now, it was, was quite difficult to get. The, the people together that had, that, had, that had really been there and worked with him at various times of, of his career. And I think of the people that have gone through the NSI and worked with Adelman, there are extraordinary range of people who've contributed huge amounts, not just in consciousness research, but in neuroscience generally, and of course in molecular biology before that. So it was a great yeah. great experience for me, but yeah, I know he, he could also be pretty difficult at times too. He had to have a pretty thick skin.
0: So, well, we have a massive interest in common. And no doubt we have many others, but consciousness is really the center of the bullseye as far as my interests go and really as far as anyone's interests go if they actually think about it. It really is the most important thing in the universe because it's the basis of all of our happiness and suffering and everything we value. It's the space in which anything that matters can matter. So the fact that you are studying it and thinking about it As much as you are, just makes you the perfect person to talk to. I think we should start with many of the usual starting points here, because I think they're the usual starting points for a reason. Let's start with a definition of consciousness. How do you define it now? I think it's kind of a challenge to define consciousness. There's a sort of easy folk definition,
1: which is that consciousness is the presence of any kind of subjective experience whatsoever. For a conscious organism, there is a phenomenal world of of subjective experience that has the character of being private, that's full of perceptual qualia or content, colors, shapes, beliefs, emotions, other kinds of feeling states. There is a world of experience that can go away completely in states like general anesthesia or dreamless sleep. It's very easy to define it that way. To define it more technically is always going to be a bit of a a challenge. And um, I think sometimes there's too much emphasis put on having a a consensus technical definition of something like consciousness, because history of science has shown us many times that definitions evolve along with um, our scientific understanding of a phenomenon. We don't sort of take the definition and then transcribe it into scientific knowledge in a unidirectional way. So, so long as we're not talking past each other, and and we we agree that, that consciousness picks out uh, a very significant phenomenon in nature, which is the presence of subjective experience, then I think we're we're on reasonably safe terrain.
0: Many of these definitions of consciousness are circular. We're just substituting another word for consciousness in the definition, like sentience or awareness or subjectivity, or even something like qualia. I think is parasitic on the Undefined concept of consciousness.
1: Sure, I think that's that's right. But then there's also a lot of confusions people make too. So I'm always surprised by how often people confuse consciousness with self-consciousness. And I think our conscious experience of selfhood are part of conscious experiences as a whole, but but only a subset of those experiences. Um, And then there are arguments about whether there's such a thing as phenomenal consciousness that's different from access consciousness, where Phenomenal consciousness refers to you know, this, this impression that we have of a very rich conscious scene, perhaps envisioned before us now, that might exceed what we have cognitive access to. And other people will say, well, no, there's no such thing as phenomenal consciousness beyond access consciousness. So there's a certain circularity, I, I agree with you there. But there are also these important distinctions that can lead to a lot of confusion when we're discussing the relevance of certain experiments.
0: I I want to just revisit the point you just made about not transcribing a definition of a concept that we have into our science as a way of capturing reality. And and there are things about which we have a folk psychological sense which completely break apart once you start studying them at the level of the brain. So something like memory, for instance, we have the sense that it's one thing intuitively, you know, pre-scientifically. We have the sense that to remember something whatever it is, is more or less the same operation regardless of what it is. Remembering what you ate for dinner last night, remembering your name, remembering who the first president of the United States was, remembering how to swing a tennis racket. These are things that we have this one word for, but we know neurologically that they're quite distinct operations and you can disrupt one and have the other intact. The promise has been that consciousness may be something like that, that we could be similarly confused about it. Although I I don't think we can be. I think consciousness is unique as a concept in this sense. And this is why I'm taken in more by the so-called hard problem of consciousness than I think you are. I think we should talk about that. But before we do, I think the definition that I want to put in play, which I know you're quite familiar with, is the one that the philosopher Thomas Nagel put forward which is that consciousness is the fact that it's like something to be a system, whatever that system is. So if if a bat is conscious, this comes from his famous essay, What Is It Like To Be A Bat? If a bat is conscious, whether or not we can understand what it's like to be a bat, if it is like something to be a bat, that is consciousness in the case of a bat. However inscrutable it might be, however impossible it might be to map that experience onto our own, If we were to trade places with a bat, that would not be synonymous with the lights going out. There is something that's like to be a bat if a bat is conscious. That definition, though, it's really not one that is easy to operationalize, and it's not a technical definition. There's something sufficiently rudimentary about that that it has always worked for me. And when we begin to move away from that definition into something more technical, my experience has been, and and you know we'll get to this as we go into the details that the danger is always that we wind up changing the subject to something else that seems more tractable. We're no longer talking about consciousness in Nagel's sense, we're talking about attention or we're talking about reportability or mere access or something. So how do you feel about Nagel's definition as a starting point?
1: I like it very much as a starting point, I think it it it's Pretty difficult to argue with with that as a very basic, fundamental expression of what we mean by consciousness in the round. Uh, So I think that's that's fine. I partly disagree with you. I partly disagree with you. I think when um, we think about the idea that consciousness might be more than one thing, and here I'm I'm much more sympathetic to the view that, heuristically at least, the best way to scientifically study consciousness and philosophically to think about it as well, is to recognize that we might be misled uh, about the extent to which we experience consciousness as a unified phenomenon. And there's a lot of mileage in recognizing how, just like the example for memory, recognizing how conscious experiences of the world and of the self can come apart in various different ways.
0: Just to be clear, actually, I agree with you there. We'll get into that, but I completely agree with you there that we could be misled about how unified consciousness is. The thing that's irreducible to me is this difference between there being something that it's like and not. You know, the lights are on or they're not. There are many different ways in which the lights can be on in ways that would surprise us. Or, for instance, it's quite possible that the lights are on in our brains in more than one spot. We'll talk about split-brain research, perhaps, but there are very counterintuitive ways the lights could be on, but the, just the question is always, is there something that it's like to be that bit of information processing or that bit of matter? And that is always the cash value of a claim for consciousness.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that it's it's perfectly reasonable to put the question in this way, that for a conscious organism, it is something like it is to be that organism. And the the, the thought is that there's going to be some physical, biological, informational basis to that distinction.
0: Now, you've written about why we really don't need to waste much time on the hard problem. Let's remind people what the hard problem is. David Chalmers has been on the podcast, and I've spoken about it with other people, but perhaps you want to introduce us to the hard problem briefly. The hard problem has been, rightly so, one of the most influential
1: uh, philosophical contributions to the consciousness debate for, for the last 20 years or so. And it goes right back to Descartes. And I think it encapsulates this fundamental mystery that, that we've started talking about now, that uh, for some physical systems, there is also this inner universe. There is the presence of conscious experience. There is something it is like to be that system. But for other systems, tables, chairs, probably most computers, probably all computers these days there is nothing it is like to be that system. Um, And what the hard problem does, it pushes that intuition a bit further, and it it distinguishes itself from the easy problem in neuroscience. And the easy problem, according to, to Chalmers, is to figure out how the brain works in all its functions, in all its detail. So to figure out how we do perception, how we utter certain linguistic phrases, how we move around the world adaptively, how the brain supports perception, cognition, behavior in all its richness in a way that would be um, indistinguishable from, uh, and here's the key really, in a way that would be indistinguishable from an equivalent that had no phenomenal properties at all, that completely lacked conscious experience. The hard problem is understanding how and why any solution to the easy problem, any explanation of how the brain does what it does in terms of behavior, perception, and so on, how and why any of this should have anything to do with conscious experiences at all. And it rests on this idea of of the conceivability of zombies, and this is one reason I don't really like it very much. I mean, the hard problem has its its conceptual power over us because it asks us to imagine uh, systems, philosophical zombies, that are completely equivalent in terms of their function and behaviour to you or to me, or to any, or to a conscious bat, but that instantiate no phenomenal properties at all. The lights are completely off for these philosophical zombies. And if we can imagine such a system, if we can imagine such a thing, a philosophical zombie, you or me, then it does become this this enormous challenge. You think, well, then what is it or what could it be about real me, real you, real conscious bad? That gives rise, that requires or entails that there are also these Phenomenal properties, that there is something it is like to be you or me or the bat. And it's, it's because Chalmers would argue that such things are conceivable that the hard problem seems like a really huge problem. Now, I, re- I think this is a little bit of a, I think we've moved on a little bit from these conceivability arguments. Firstly, I just think that they're pretty weak. Um, and the more you know about, uh, a system, you know, the more we know ha- about the easy problem, the less convincing it is to imagine a zombie alternative. Now, I, I, you know, think about, um, you know, you're a, you're, a, you're a kid, you look up at the sky and you see a 747 flying overhead. And somebody asks you to imagine a, a 747 flying backwards. Well, you can imagine a 747 flying backwards. But the more you learn about aerodynamics, about engineering, the harder it is to conceive of a 747 flying backwards. You know, you simply can't build one that way. And that's my worry about this kind of conceivability argument. That, to me, I, I I really don't think I can imagine in a serious way the existence of a philosophical zombie. And if I can't imagine a zombie, then the hard problem
0: loses some of its force. That's interesting. I I don't think it loses all of its force, or at least it doesn't for me. For me, the hard problem has never really rested on the zombie argument. Although I know Chalmers did a lot with the zombie argument. I mean, so let's just stipulate that philosophical zombies are impossible. They're at least, what's called in the jargon nomologically impossible. It's just a fact that we live in a universe where if you built something that could do what I can do, that something would be conscious. So there is no zombie Sam that's possible. And let's just also add what you just said, that really when you get to the details, you're not even conceiving of it being possible. It's not even conceptually possible you're not thinking it through enough. And if you did, you would notice it break apart. But for me, the hard problem is really that with consciousness, any explanation doesn't seem to promise the same sort of intuitive closure that other scientific explanations do. It's analogous to whatever it is, and we'll get to some of the possible explanations, but it's not like something like life which is an analogy that you draw and that many scientists have drawn to how we can make a breakthrough here it used to be that people thought life could never be explained in mechanistic terms there was a, a philosophical point of view called vitalism here which suggested that you needed some animating spirit some elan vital in the wheelworks to make sense of the fact that living systems are different from dead ones The fact that they can reproduce and repair themselves from injury and metabolize and all the functions we see a living system engage, which define what it is to be alive, it was thought very difficult to understand any of that in mechanistic terms. And then, lo and behold, we managed to do that. The difference for me is, and you know, I'm happy to have you prop up this analogy more than I have. But the difference for me is that everything you want to say about life. With the exception of conscious life, we have to leave consciousness off the table here. Everything else you want to say about life can be defined in terms of extrinsic functional relationships among material parts. So, you know, reproduction and growth and healing and metabolism and homeostasis, all of this is physics and need not be described in any other way. And even something like perception, you know, the transduction of Energy, you know, let's say, you know, vision, light energy into electrical and chemical energy in the brain, and, and the mapping of a visual space onto a visual cortex, all of that makes sense in mechanistic physical terms until you add this piece of, oh, but for some of these processes, there's something that it's like to be that process. For me, the, it just strikes me as a false analogy. And with or without zombies, the hard problem still stays hard.
1: I think it's an open question whether the analogy will turn out to be false or not. It's, it's difficult for us now to put ourselves back in the, the mindset of somebody 80 years ago, 100 years ago, when vitalism was, was quite prominent, and whether the sense of mystery uh, surrounding something that was alive uh, seemed to be as inexplicable as consciousness seems to us today. So it's, it's easy to say with hindsight, I think, that, that life is something different. But you know we've, we've encountered, or, or rather scientists and philosophers over centuries have encountered things that have seemed to be inexplicable, that have turned out to be ex- explicable. So I don't think we should rule out a, a priori that uh, there's going to be something really different this time about consciousness. There's... I think a more a heuristic aspect to this is that if we, if we run with the analogy of life, what that, what that leads us to do is to isolate the different phenomenal properties that co-constitute what it is for us to be conscious. You know, we can think about, and we'll come to this, I'm sure we think about conscious selfhood as distinct from conscious perception of the outside world. We can think about conscious experiences of uh, volition and of agency that are also very sort of central to our certainly our experience of self, these, gives us, these give us phenomenological explanatory targets then, that we can then try to account for in, with particular kinds of mechanisms. It may turn out at the end of doing this that there's some, some residue. There is still something that is fundamentally puzzling, which is this hard problem residue. Why, is, why, is there any, uh, why are there any lights on for any of these kinds of things? Isn't it all just perception? But maybe it won't turn out like that. And I think to give us the best chance of it not turning out like that, there's a positive and a negative aspect. The positive aspect is that we need to retain a focus on phenomenology. And this is another reason why I think the the hard easy problem distinction can be a little bit unhelpful, because in addressing the easy problem, we are Basically, instructed to not worry about phenomenology. All we should worry about is function and behavior. And then the hard problem kind of gathers within its remit everything to do with phenomenology in in this this central mystery of why is there some experience rather than no experience. The alternative approach, and this is something I've kind of caricatured as the real problem, but David Chalmers himself has called it the mapping problem. And and Varela, Francisco Varela, uh, talks about a similar set of ideas with his neurophenomenology is to not try to solve the hard problem to court, not try to explain how it is possible that consciousness comes to be part of the universe, but rather to individuate different kinds of phenomenological properties and draw some explanatory mapping between neural, biological, physical mechanisms and these phenomenological properties. Now, once we've done that and we can begin to explain not why is there experience at all, but why are certain experiences the way they are and not other ways, and we can predict when certain experiences will have particular phenomenal characters, and so on, then we'll have done a lot more um, than we can currently do. And we may have to make use of novel kinds of conceptual frameworks, maybe frameworks like information processing will run their course and will require other more sophisticated kinds of descriptions of dynamics and probability in order to build these explanatory bridges. So I think we can get a lot closer. And the negative aspect is, why should we ask more of a theory of consciousness than we should ask of other kinds of scientific theories? And I know people have talked about this on your your podcast before as well, but we do seem to want more of an explanation of consciousness than we would do of an explanation in, in biology or physics, that it somehow should feel intuitively right to us. And I wonder why this is such a big deal when it comes to, to consciousness. Uh, you know, because we're trying to explain something fundamental about ourselves doesn't necessarily mean that we should apply different kinds of standards to an explanation that we would apply in other fields of science. It's, it just may not be that we get this feeling that something is intuitively correct when it is in, factually, in fact uh, a very good scientific account of the origin of phenomenal Properties. Certainly, I mean, certainly scientific explanations are not instantiations. There's no sense in which a good theory of consciousness should be expected to suddenly realize the phenomenal properties that it's explaining. But also, I think we, yeah, we do, I worry that we ask too much of theories of consciousness this way.
0: Yeah, well, we'll move forward into the details and I'll just flag moments where I feel like the hard problem should be causing problems for us. I do think it's not a matter of asking too much of a theory of consciousness here. I think it's there are very few areas in science where the accepted explanation is totally a brute fact which just has to be accepted because it is the only explanation that works, but it's not something that actually illuminates the transition from, you know, atoms to some higher level phenomenon, say. Again, for everything we could say about life even the very strange details of molecular biology, just how information in the genome gets out and creates the rest of a human body, it still runs through when you look at the details. It's surprising. It's at parts difficult to visualize, but the more we visualize it, the more we describe it, the closer we get to something that is highly intuitive, even something like you know, the flow of water. The fact that water molecules in its liquid state are loosely bound and move past one another, well, that seems exactly like what should be happening at the micro level. So, as to explain the macro level property of the wetness of water and the fact that it has characteristics, higher level characteristics, that you can't attribute to atoms, but you can attribute to collections of atoms, like turbulence, say. Whereas, with, you know, if consciousness just happens to require some minimum number of information processing units knit together in a certain configuration firing at a certain hertz and you change any of those parameters and the lights go out that for me still seems like a mere brute fact that doesn't explain consciousness it's just a correlation that we decide is the crucial one and i've never heard a, a description of consciousness you know of the sort that we will get to like you know, integrated information, you know, Tononi's phrase, that unpacks it any more than that. And you can react to that, but then I think we should just get into the details and see how it all sounds. Sure. I'll just,
1: I'll just react very briefly, which is, which is that I think I'd also be terribly disappointed if the, you, know, you look at the, the answer in A Book of Nature and it turned out to be, yes, you need 612,000 neurons wired up in a small world network and, and you know, that's, that's it. Yeah, the the hope is that does seem, of course, ridiculous and arbitrary and and unsatisfying. The hope is that as we progress beyond, if you like, just brute correlates of conscious states towards accounts that provide more satisfying bridges between mechanism and phenomenology that explain, for instance, why a visual experience has the phenomenal character that it has and not some other uh, kind of phenomenal character like an emotion. That it won't seem so arbitrary, and that as we follow this route, which is an empirically productive route, and I think that's important. That if we we can actually do science with this route, we can try to think about how to operationalize phenomenology in various different ways. Very difficult to think how to do science and just solve the hard problem head on. At the end of that, I I completely agree. There might be still this uh, residue of of mystery, this kernel of, of something fundamental. Left unexplained. But I don't think we can take that as a given because we can't. I, well, I certainly can't predict what I would feel as intuitively satisfying when I don't know what the explanations that bridge mechanism and phenomenology are going to look like in 10 or 20 years' time. We've already moved further from you know, just saying it's this area or that area uh, to synchrony, which is still kind of unsatisfying to now, I think, some emerging frameworks like you know, predictive processing and integrated information, which, which aren't completely satisfying either. But they hinted a trajectory where we, we're beginning to draw closer connections between mechanism and phenomenology.
0: Okay, well, let's dive into those hints. But before we do, I'm just wondering, phylogenetically, in terms of comparing ourselves to so-called lower animals, where do you think consciousness... Emerges. Do you think there's something that's like to be a fly? Say,
1: <laughs> that's a really hard problem. I mean, it's I I, I have to be agnostic about this. Uh, and again, it's just striking how people in general's views on these things seems to have changed over the last you know, recent decades. It seems completely unarguable to me that other mammals, all other mammals, have conscious experiences of one sort or another. I mean, we share so much in the way of the relevant neuroanatomy and neurophysiology exhibit so many of the same behaviors that it would be remarkable to claim otherwise.
0: Well, it actually wasn't that long ago that you could still hear people say that consciousness was so dependent on language that they wondered whether human infants were conscious, but to say nothing of dogs and anything else that's not human.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's a terrific point. And you know, this idea that, that consciousness was intimately and, and constitutively bound up with language or with higher order executive processing of one sort or another, um, you know, I think just exemplifies this really pernicious anthropocentrism that, that we tend to bring to bear sometimes without realizing it. You know, we think we're super intelligent, we think we're conscious, we're smart, you know, and we need to judge everything by that benchmark and what's the what's the most advanced thing about humans well you know if you're if you're gifted with language you're going to say language and you know, it, it now already with a bit of hindsight seems to me anyway rather remarkable that people should make these i can only think of them as just just quite naive errors uh, to associate consciousness with with language it's not to say that Consciousness and language don't have any intimate relation. I think they do. Language shapes a lot of our conscious experiences. But certainly it's a very, very poor criterion with which to attribute subjective states to other creatures. So mammals for sure. I mean, mammals for sure, right? Um, But that's easy because they're pretty similar to to humans and primates being mammals. But then it gets more complicated. And you think about birds diverged a reasonable amount of time ago. Uh, but still have brain structures that one can, can um, establish analogies, in some cases homologies, with mammalian brain structures. And in some species, scrub jays and corvids generally, pretty sophisticated behavior too. Uh, it seems very possible to me that, that birds have conscious experiences. And I'm aware underlying all this, the only basis to make these judgments is in, in, in light of what we know about the neural mechanisms underlying consciousness and the functional and behavioral properties of consciousness in mammals. It has to be this kind of slow extrapolation because we lack you know, the mechanistic answer and we can't look for it in another species. But then you get beyond birds and you get um, out to, you know, I, I then like to go way out on a phylogenetic branch to the octopus. Uh, which I think is an extraordinary example of convergent evolution. I mean, they're very smart. They have a lot of neurons, but they diverged from the human line. I think as long ago as sponges or something like that. I mean, really, very little in common. And um, but they have incredible differences too: three hearts, uh, you know, eight legs, arms. I'm never sure whether it's a leg or an arm um, that behave semi-autonomously, and. One is left here when you spend time with these creatures, I've been lucky enough to spend a week with them in a in a lab in, in Naples. You certainly get the impression of a, of another conscious presence there, but of a, of a very different one. and this is also instructive because it 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 brings us a little bit out of this assumption that we can fall into that there is one way of being conscious, and that's our way. there's you know, there is a huge space of possible minds out there, and uh, the octopus is is a very definite example of a very uh, different mind and very likely uh, conscious mind too. Now, when we get down to, oh, I, yeah, not really down, I don't like this idea of, of organisms being arranged on a single scale like this, but certainly creatures like fish, insects, are simpler in all sorts of ways than, than mammals. And here it's really very difficult to know where to draw the line, if indeed there is a line to be drawn, if it's not just a gradual shading out of, of consciousness you know, that with grey areas in between and no categorical divide, which I think is equally um, possible. You know, fish, many fish display behaviours which seem suggestive of consciousness. They will self-administer analgesia when they're given painful stimulation. Um, they will avoid places that have been associated with painful stimulation and so on. You hear things like the precautionary principle come into play, that uh, given that suffering, if it exists, conscious suffering is a very aversive state and it's ethically wrong to impose that state on other creatures, we should tend to assume that uh, creatures are conscious unless we have good good evidence that they're they're not. So we should put the bar a little bit lower um, in most
0: cases. Let's talk about some of the aspects of consciousness that you have identified as being distinct, that there are at least three. You've spoken about the level of consciousness, the contents of consciousness, and the experience of having a conscious self that many people, as you said, conflate with consciousness as a mental property. There's obviously a relationship between these things, but they're not the same. Let's start with this notion of the level of consciousness which really isn't the same thing as wakefulness. Can you break those apart for me? How is being conscious non-synonymous with being awake in the human sense?
1: Sure. Uh, let me just first amplify what, what you said, that in making these distinctions, I'm certainly not uh, claiming, pretending, that these dimensions of level, content, and self pick out completely independent. Aspects of conscious experiences. There are are lots of interdependencies. I just think they're heuristically useful ways to to address the issue. We we can do different kinds of experiments and try to isolate distinct phenomenal properties and their mechanistic basis by making these distinctions. Now, when it comes to conscious level, I think that the simplest way to think of this is is more or less as a scale. In this case, it's from uh, when the lights are completely out, when you're dead, brain death, or under general anesthesia, or perhaps in very, very deep states of sleep, all the way up to um, vague levels of awareness, which are similar, which correlate with, with wakefulness. So when you're very drowsy, to vivid, awake, alert, full conscious experience that that you know, I'm certainly having now, I feel very awake and alert. And, and you know, my conscious level is kind of up there. Now, In most cases, the level of consciousness articulated this way will go along with with wakefulness or physiological arousal. When you fall asleep, you lose consciousness, at least in early stages. But there are certain cases that, that exist which show that they're not completely the same thing on both sides. So you can be conscious when you're asleep. Of course, we know this. This is called dreaming. So, you're physiologically asleep, but you're having a vivid inner uh, life there. Um, and on the other side, and this is where consciousness science, the rubber of consciousness science, hits the road of neurology, you have states where behaviorally you have um, what, look like, what looks like arousal. Uh, this is, used to be called the vegetative state, it's been kind of renamed several times, now the wakeful unawareness state, where the idea is that the body is still going through physiological cycles. Of, of arousal from sleep to wake but there is no consciousness happening at all the lights are, are not on uh, so these two things can be separated and it's very you know it's a very productive and very important uh, line of work to try to isolate what's the mechanistic basis of conscious level independently from the mechanistic basis of physiological arousal
0: yeah, and a few other distinctions to make here. So, also, general anesthesia is quite distinct from deep sleep, just as a matter of neurophysiology.
1: Certainly, general anesthesia is, is not is nothing like sleep. It, certainly, deep levels of general anesthesia. So, whenever you go for an operation and the anesthesiologist is trying to make you feel more comfortable by just saying something like, "Yeah, we'll just put you to sleep for a while, and and then you'll wake up and it'll be done," they are lying to you. Um, for good reason. You know, it's, it's kind of nice just to feel that you're going to sleep for a bit. But the state of general anesthesia is very different. And for very good reason. If you were just put into a state of sleep, you would wake up as soon as the operation started. And that wouldn't be uh, very pleasant. Um, it's surprising how far down you can take people in general anesthesia, you know, almost to a level of isoelectric brain activity where there is pretty much nothing going on at all, and still bring them back. And um, and any most many people now have had the the non experience of general anesthesia, and in some weird way, I now look forward to it the next time I get to have this because it's a very uh, sort of it's almost a reassuring experience because there is absolutely nothing. It's complete oblivion. It's not you know when you go to sleep as well, you can sleep for a while and you'll wake up and you might be confused about what how much time has passed, especially if you've just. Flown across some time zones or stayed up too late, something like that. You know, might not be sure what time it is, but you'll still have this sense of some time having passed.
0: Except we have this problem, or some people have this problem of anesthesia awareness, which is you know, every person's worst nightmare if they care to think about it, where people have the experience of the surgery because for whatever reason the anesthesia hasn't taken them deep enough and yet they're immobilized and can't signal that they're. Not deep enough.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. But th- I mean, that's a failure of anesthesia. It's not a characteristic of the anesthetic state. Do you know
0: who had that experience? You, you've mentioned him on the podcast. I uh, really? Francisco Varela. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah, Francisco was getting a liver transplant and experienced some part of it. Uh,
1: well, that's that's pretty horrific.
0: Could not have been fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, because the thing there is, you know, under most. Serious operations, you're also administered with a, a muscle paralytic, so that you don't jerk around when you're being operated on, and that's why it's it's particularly a nightmare scenario. But you know, if anesthesia is working properly, certainly the times I've had general anesthesia, you you start counting to ten, or start counting backwards from ten, you get to about eight, and then instantly you're back somewhere else, very confused, very disoriented. But there is no sense of time having passed. It's just complete oblivion. And that, I found that really reassuring because you, we can think conceptually about not being bothered about all the times we were not conscious before we were born. And therefore, we shouldn't worry too much about all the times we're not going to be conscious after we die. But to experience these moments of complete oblivion during a lifetime, or rather, you know, the edges of them, I think is a is a very enlightening kind of experience to have.
0: Although there's a place here where the hard problem does emerge because it's very difficult, perhaps impossible, to distinguish between a failure of memory and oblivion. Has consciousness really been interrupted? Take anesthesia and deep sleep as separate but similar in the sense that most people think there was a hiatus in consciousness. I'm prepared to believe that that's not true of deep sleep, but we just don't remember what it's like to be deeply asleep. I'm someone who often doesn't remember his dreams, and I'm prepared to believe that I dream every night. And we know, even in the case with general anesthesia, they give amnesiac drugs so that you won't remember whatever they don't want you to remember. And I recently had the experience of not going under, under a full anesthesia, but having a know, what's called a twilight sleep for a procedure. And there was a whole period afterwards where I was coming to about a half hour that I don't remember and you know it was clear to my wife that I wasn't going to remember it, but she and I were having a conversation. I was talking to her about something, I was saying how, you know, perfectly recovered I was and how miraculous it was to be back. And she said, Yeah, but you're not gonna remember any of this. You're not gonna remember this conversation. And I said, okay, well, let's test it. You know, you say something now and we'll see if I remember it. And she said, th- she said this is the test, dummy. You're not going to remember this part of the conversation. And I have no memory of that part of the conversation. <laughs> so, 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 <laughs> it's a good so, test. Yeah.
1: Now, you, you're right, of course, that, that um, even in stages of deep sleep, people underestimate the presence of conscious experiences. And this has been demonstrated by. Uh, experiments called serial awakening experiments where you'll just, you, you'll just wake somebody up various times during, during sleep cycles and ask them straight away, you know, what was in your mind? And uh, quite often people will report often very simple sorts of experiences, you know, static images and so on, in stages of non-REM, non-dreaming sleep. And I, you know, I concede that, it, that there may be a contribution of amnesia to the post hoc impression of what general anesthesia uh, was like. But at the same time, there's all the difference in the world between the twilight zone and, and full-on general anesthesia, where it's not just that I don't remember anything, it's the real sense of, of a hiatus of consciousness, of a complete interruption and a, a complete instantaneous resumption of that experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, I've had a general anesthetic as well, and there is something quite uncanny about disappearing and being brought back without a sense of any intervening time. and Because you're not aware of the time signature of having been in deep sleep, but there clearly is one. And the fact that many people can go to sleep and kind of set an intention to wake up at a certain time, and they wake up at that time, often to the minute, it's clear there's some timekeeping function happening in our brains all the while. But there's something about a general anesthetic which just seems like Okay, the hard drive just got rebooted, and who knows how long the computer was off for. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about these other features. We've just dealt with the level of consciousness. Talk to me about the contents of consciousness. How do you think about that?
1: When we are conscious, then we're conscious of something. And I think this is what uh, the large majority of consciousness research empirically focuses on. You, you take somebody who is conscious at a particular time and, and you try to, you can ask a few different questions. You can, you can ask what aspects of their perception it, are unconscious and not reflected in any phenomenal properties, and what aspects of their perception are reflected in their phenomenal property. What's the difference between conscious and unconscious processing, if you like? What's the difference between different modalities of conscious perception? So at any at any one time, we may, certainly in in outside of the lab, our our conscious scene at any one time will have a very multimodal character. There'll be sound, sight, experiences of touch, maybe if you're sitting down or holding something. And then a whole range of more self-related experiences too, of body ownership of all the signals coming from deep inside the body, which are more relevant to self. But the basic idea of conscious content is to study what the mechanisms are that give rise to the particular content of a, of a conscious scene at any one time. And um, here, you, the reason it's useful to think of this as, as separate from conscious level is partly that we can appeal to different kinds of theories, different kinds of, of, of theoretical and um, empirical frameworks. So the way I like to think about conscious perception is in terms of prediction in terms of what's often been called the bayesian brain or unconscious inference from from helmholtz uh, and and so on and the idea that perception in general works more from the top down or from the outside in than from the um sorry i got that wrong Uh, perception jet works more from the top down or the inside out rather than from the the bottom up or the outside in And this has a long history in in philosophy as well, back to Kant and, and and long before that too. I mean, the straw man, the kind of the easily defeated idea about perception is that sensory signals impinge upon our receptors and they percolate deeper and deeper into the brain. And at each stage of processing, more complex operations are brought to bear. And at some point, Ignition happens or something happens and you're conscious of those sensory signals at that point. And I think this is, this is kind of the wrong way to think about it. That, um, that if you look at the, the problem of perception that brains face, and let's simplify it a lot now and just assume the problem is something like the following. That the brain is locked inside a bony skull and let's assume, for the sake of this argument, that perception is the problem of figuring out what's out there in the world that's giving rise to sensory signals that impinge on our our sensory surfaces, eyes and ears. Uh, Now, these sensory signals are going to be noisy and ambiguous. They're not going to have a one-to-one mapping with things out there in the world, whatever they may be. So perception has to involve this process of inference, of best guessing, in which the brain combines prior expectations or beliefs about the way the world is with the sensory data to come up with its best guess, about the causes of that sensory data. And in this view, what we perceive is constituted by these multi-level predictions that try to explain away or account for uh, the sensory signals. We perceive what the brain infers to have caused those signals, not the sensory signals themselves. In this view, there's nothing that it is for there to be raw sensory experience of any kind. All perceptual experience is an inference of one sort or another. And given that view, one can then start to ask uh, all sorts of interesting experimental questions like, well, what kinds of predictions? How do predictions or expectations affect what we consciously perceive, consciously report? What kinds of predictions may still go on under the hood and not instantiate any phenomenal properties? But it gives us this set of tools that we can use to build bridges between phenomenology and mechanism again. In this case, the bridges are, are made up of the computational mechanisms of of Bayesian inference as they might be implemented in neuronal circuitry. And so instead of you know looking for, you know, asking questions like, is V1, is early visual cortex uh, associated with visual experience, we might ask questions like, are Bayesian priors or posteriors associated with conscious phenomenology, or are prediction errors associated with conscious phenomenology? We can start to ask slightly, I think, more sophisticated bridging questions like that.
0: Well, yeah, in your TED Talk, you talk about consciousness as a controlled hallucination. And I think Chris Frith has called it a fantasy that coincides with reality. Can you say a little more about that and how that relates to the role of top-down prediction in perception?
1: Yeah, I think they're both very nice phrases. Um, uh, And I think the phrase controlled hallucination actually has been very difficult to pin down where it came from. I, I heard it from Chris Frith as well originally, and, and I've asked him and others where originally it came from, and we can trace it to a seminar given by Ramesh Jain at UCSD sometime in the 90s, but it was a verbal, well, it, there the trail goes cold. But anyway, the, the idea is sort of the following, that there's a, we can bring to bear a naive realism about perception where we assume that what we visually perceive is the way things actually are, in the real world, um, that there is a table in front of me that has a particular color that has a piece of paper on it and so on. And that's veridical perception, as distinct from hallucination, where we have a perceptual experience that has no corresponding reference in in the real world. Uh, And the idea of controlled hallucination or fantasy that coincides with reality is simply to say that normal perception is always a balance. Of, uh, of sensory signals coming from the world and the interpretations, predictions that we bring to bear about the causes of those sensations. So we are always seeing what we expect to see in this Bayesian sense. We, we never just see the, the sensory data. Now, normally, uh, we can see this all the, all the time. It, we, it's built into our visual systems that light is expected to come from above because our visual systems have evolved in a situation where the sun is never below us. So that causes us to perceive shadows in a particular way. Um, Rather, we'll perceive curved surfaces as being curved one way or another under the assumption that light comes from above. We're not aware of having that that constraint built deep into our visual system, but it's there. And um, the idea is that every perception that we have is constituted, partly constituted, by... These predictions, these interpretive um, powers that the brain brings to bear in, onto perceptual content. And that what we call hallucinations is just a tipping of the balance, slightly more towards the brain's own internal predictions. You know, another good everyday example of this is if you, you, know, you go out on a day where there's lots of white, fluffy clouds, and you can see faces in clouds if you choose if you look for them this is pareidolia. you can see pat- you can see patterns in noise. Now that's a kind of hallucination there. You're seeing something uh, that that's other people might not see, um, it's not accompanied by a delusion. You know it's a hallucination. But it's still it just shows how our perceptual content is always framed by our interpretation.
0: Another good everyday example is dreams, because dreams, we know are a situation where our brain is doing something very similar to what it's doing in the waking state, except the frontal lobes have come offline enough so that there's just not the same kind of reality testing going on. And our perception in this case is not being constrained by outer stimuli. It's just, it's being generated from within. But would this be an analogous situation where our top-down prediction mechanisms are roving unconstrained by sensory data?
1: I think, yeah, dreams certainly show that you don't need sensory data to have vivid conscious perception because you, know, you don't have any sensory input apart from a bit of auditory input when you're dreaming. I think the phenomenology of dreams is is interestingly different. Uh, it, yeah, Dream content is very much less constrained. There is this naive realism just goes nuts in dreams, doesn't it? I mean, things can change. People can change. Identity locations can change. Weird things happen all the time. You don't experience them as being weird.
0: That's the weirdest part of dreams, the fact that it's not that they're so weird, it's that their weirdness is not detected. We don't care that they're so weird.
1: Yeah, which is, which is I think, a, a great example of how we often overestimate the insight we have about what our conscious experiences are like. Um, you know, we tend to assume that we know exactly what's happening in all our conscious experiences all the time, whether it's weird or not. Dreams show that that's not always the case. But I think the idea of controlled hallucination goes... It, it, it's as present in the normal, in non-dreaming perception as it is in, in dreaming. And it really is this idea that all our perception is constituted by our brain's predictions of the causes of sensory input. And most of the time walking around the world, we will agree about this perceptual content. If I see a table and claim it's this color, you know, you'll, you'll probably agree with me. And We don't have to go into the philosophical inverted spectra thing here. It's just a case of we tend to report the same sorts of things when faced with the same sorts of sensory inputs. Um, So we don't think there's anything particularly constructed about the way we perceive things, because we all agree on it. But then when something tips the balance, maybe it's under certain pharmacological stimulus, maybe it's in dreams, maybe it's in certain um, states of psychosis and mental illness, then people's predictions about the causes of sensory information will differ from one another and if you're an outlier then people will say oh now you're hallucinating because you're you reporting something that that isn't there and uh, my my friend the the musician baba brinkman put it beautifully he said you know what we call reality is just when we all agree about our hallucinations which i think is a really nice way uh, to put that
0: this leaves open the question what is happening when we experience something fundamentally new or have an experience where our expectations are violated. So, we're using terms like predictions or expectations or models of the world. But I think there's a scope for some confusion here because I mean, just imagine, for instance, that some malicious zookeeper put a fully grown tiger in your kitchen while you were sleeping tonight. I presume that when you come down for your morning coffee, you will see this tiger in the kitchen. Even though you have no reasonable expectation to be met by a tiger in the morning, I think it's safe to assume you'll see it even before you've had your cup of coffee. So given this, what do we mean by expectations at the level of the brain?
1: That's a very, very important point. I, it's this whole language of, of the, the Bayesian brain in predictive processing, bandies around terms like prediction expectation and prediction error, surprise, and, and all these things. It's very, very important to recognize that these terms don't only mean or don't really mean at all psychological surprise or explicit beliefs and expectations that, that I might hold. So, certainly, if I go down in the morning, I am not expecting to see a tiger. However, my visual system, when it encounters a particular kind of input, is still expecting, you know, if, it, if, it, if there are sensory input that pick out things like edges, it will, th- it will best interpret those as an edge. And if it will pick out stripes, it will interpret those as stripes. Um, it's not unexpected to see something with an edge, and it may not be unexpected to see something with a stripe. It may not even be unexpected, from my brain's point of view, to see something that looks a bit like a face. And those become low-level best guesses about the causes of sensory input, which then give rise to higher level predictions about those causes. And ultimately, the best guess is that there's some kind of animal there, and indeed, that it's a tiger. So I don't think there's a conflict here. We can see new things, because new things are built up from simpler elements for which we will have uh, adequate predictions for, built up over evolution and over development and over prior experience.
0: And one thing you point out, at least in one of your papers, maybe you did this in the TED talk, that different contents of consciousness have different characters, so that visual perception is object-based in a way that interior perception is not. The sensing of an experience like nausea, say, or even of an emotion like sadness, does not have all of the features of perceiving an object in visual space. You're looking at an object in visual space, there's this sense of Location. There's the sense that anything that has a front will also have a back. That if you walked around it, you would be given different views of it. You know, none of which may ever repeat exactly. You know, I'm looking at my computer now. You know, I've probably never seen my computer from precisely this angle. And if I walked around it, I would see you know thousands of different slices of this thing in you know the movie of my life. And yet, there's this unitary sense of an object in space that has a front and back and sides. And yet, of course, none of this applies when we're thinking about our internal experience. Do you have any more you want to say about that? Because that's a very interesting distinction, which again is one of these places where the terminology we use for being aware of things or being conscious of things or perceiving things doesn't really get at the phenomenology very well.
1: Now, thank you for raising that. I think this is a it's a great point and something I've thought quite a lot about. And there's a couple of elements here, so I'll. I'll start by talking about this phenomenology of objecthood that you beautifully described for, for vision there and then get on to this case of interoception and perception of the internal state of the body. So indeed, for most of us, most of the time, visual experience is characterized by there being a world of objects around us. I see coffee cups on the table, computers in front of me and, and so on. Actually, that's not always the case. If I'm, for instance, trying to catch a, a cricket ball um, or a softball or something someone's thrown to me. What my perceptual system is doing there is not so much trying to figure out what's out there in the world. It's all geared towards the goal of catching the cricket ball. And you know, there's a whole branch of, um, of psychology it has roots in Gibsonian ecological psychology and William Power's perceptual control theory that, that sort of inverts things. And it says that there's this whole tradition in thinking about perception and its interaction um, with behavior. I mean, we like to think that we perceive the world and then we behave. So we have perception and the control of uh, controlling behavior. But we can also think of it the other way around and think of um, behavior controlling perception. So that when we catch a cricket ball, what we're really doing is maintaining a perceptual variable to, to be a constant. In this case, it would be the acceleration of the angle of the ball to the horizon. If we keep that constant, we will catch the cricket ball. And if you reflect on the phenomenology of these things, if I'm engaged in an act like that, I'm not so much perceiving the world as distinct objects arranged in particular ways. I'm perceiving how well my catching the cricket ball is happening. Am I likely to catch it? Is it going well or not? That's a different kind of description of visual phenomenology. But most of and this will become important a bit later when we talk about why our experience of the inside of our bodies, of of being a body, has the character that it has. I think it's more like catching a cricket ball, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But if we think now just back to when we're not catching things, we're just looking around and we see this visual scene populated by objects. And you're absolutely right that one way to think of that is that when I perceive an object to be to have a volumetric extension, to be a three-dimensional thing in the world occupying a particular location. What that means is that I'm perceiving how that object would behave if I were to interact with it in different ways. This has another tradition, well, it's back to Gibson again and and ecological psychology, but also sensory motor theory of of Alvin Noe and Kevin O'Regan, that what I perceive is how I can interact with an object. I perceive an object as having a back, not because I can see the back, but because my brain is encoding somehow how different actions would reveal that that surface, the back of that, that object. And that's a distinctive kind of, of phenomenology. In the language of predictive processing of the Bayesian brain, you know, one thing I've been trying to do is, is cash out that account of... The phenomenology of objecthood in terms of the kinds of predictions that might underlie it. And these turn out to be uh, conditional or counterfactual predictions about the sensory consequences of action. So, um, in order to perceive something as having objecthood, the thought is that my brain is encoding how sensory data would change if I were to move around it, if I were to pick it up, and, and so on and so forth. And if we think about The mechanics that might underlie that, they fall out quite naturally from this Bayesian brain perspective because to engage in predictive perception, to bring perceptual interpretations to bear on on sensory data, our brain needs to encode something like a generative model. It needs to be able to have a model of the mapping from sensory data to, uh, or rather the mapping from something in the world to sensory data and be able to invert that mapping. That's how you, you do Bayesian inference in the brain. And if you've got a generative model that can invert that mapping, then that's capable of predicting what sensory signals would happen conditional on different kinds of, of actions. This is, um, it brings in an extension of predictive processing that's technically called active inference, where we start to think about reducing prediction errors not only by updating one's predictions, but also by making actions to sort of make our predictions come true. But, it, but in any case, you can make some interesting empirical predictions about how our experience of something as an object depends on what the brain learns about ways of interacting with these objects. And we've started to test some of these ideas in the lab because it, you can now use clever things like virtual reality and augmented reality. To generate objects that will be initially unfamiliar, but that behave in in weird ways when you try to interact with them. So you can either support or confound these kinds of conditional expectations, and then try to understand what the phenomenological consequences of doing so are. And you can also account for situations where this phenomenology of objecthood seems to be lacking. So, for instance, in synesthesia which is a very interesting uh, phenomenon in consciousness uh, research. And, and yeah, I'm sure you, you know this, Sam, but a very canonical example of synesthesia is when grapheme is graphene color, color synesthesia. People may look at a black letter or number or graphene, and they will experience a color along with that experience. They will have a color experience, a concurrent color experience. This is very, very well-established. What's often not focused on is that pretty much across the board in, in graphene color synesthesia, synesthetes, they don't make any confusion that the letter is actually red or actually green. They still experience the letter as black. They're just having an additional experience of, of color along with it. They're not, they don't confuse it as a property. So this is why whenever you see a, a kind of illustration of synesthesia with a letters colored in, it's a very, very poor. Um, illustration I'm guilty of using those kinds of poor illustrations in the past but this color experience does not have the phenomenology of objecthood it lacks it it doesn't appear to be part of an object in the outside world why not well it doesn't exhibit the same kinds of sensory motor contingencies that an object that has a particular color does so you know if i am looking at if i'm synesthetic and i'm looking at the letter f and i Change your lighting conditions somewhat, or move around it, then a real a really red F will change its luminance and reflectance properties in subtle but significant ways. But for my synesthetic experience, it's still just an F. So my experience of red doesn't change. So I think we can we can this is just a, a promising example of how uh, concepts and mechanisms from within predictive perception can start to, to unravel some pervasive and modality-specific phenomenological properties of consciousness.
0: I think it's worth emphasizing the connection between perception and action because it, it's one thing to talk about it in the context of catching a cricket ball, but when you talk about the evolutionary logic of having developed perceptual capacities in the first place, the link to action becomes quite explicit. We have not evolved to perceive the world as it is for some abstract epistemological reason. We've evolved to perceive what's biologically useful. And what's biologically useful is always connected, at least, you know, when you're talking about the outside world, to actions. If you can't move, if you can't act in any way, there would have been very little reason to evolve a capacity for sight, for instance.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's that beautiful story i think of is it the sea slug or the sea snail or or something of that sort some some very simple marine creature that swims about um during its juvenile phase looking for a a place to settle and once it's settled and and it just starts filter feeding it digests its own brain because it no longer has any need uh for perceptual competence now that it's not going to move anymore and this is often used as a as a slightly unkind analogy for getting tenure in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right that, that, that perception is not about figuring out really what's there. We perceive the world as it's useful for us to do so. And I think this is particularly important when we think about perception of the internal state of the body, which, which you mentioned earlier, this, this whole um, domain of interoception. Because if you think, what, you know, what are brains for fundamentally? Right, they're not for perceiving the world as it is. They're certainly not for, for uh, didn't evolve for doing philosophy or complex language. Um, they evolved to guide action. But even more fundamentally than that, brains evolved to keep themselves and bodies alive. They evolved to engage in uh, homeostatic regulation of the body so that it remains within viable. Physiological bounds. That's fundamentally what, what what brains are for. They're for helping creatures stay alive. And so the the most basic cycle of perception and action doesn't involve the outside world at all. It doesn't involve the exterior surfaces of the body at all. It's only about regulating the internal milieu, the internal physiology of the the body, and keeping it within the bounds. That are compatible with survival. And I think this gives us a, a clue here about why experiences of mood and emotion and of, if you like, the most basic essence of selfhood have this non object like character. So the, I think the way to approach this is to first realize that just as we perceive the outside world on the basis of, Sensory signals that are met with a top down flow of perceptual expectations and predictions. The very same applies to perception of the internal state of the body. Uh, The brain has to know what the internal state of the body is like. It doesn't have any direct access to it just because it's wrapped within a single layer of skin. I mean, the brain is is the brain. All it gets are noisy and ambiguous electrical signals. So it still has to interpret uh, and bring to bear. Predictions and expectations in order to make sense of the barrage of sensory signals coming from inside the body. And this is what's collectively called interoception, perception of the body from within. Just, just as a side note, it's very important to distinguish this from introspection, which could hardly be more different, introspection, you know, consciously reflecting on the content of our experience. This is not that. This is interoception, perception of the body from within. So the same computational principles apply, we have to bring to bear, our brain has to bring to bear predictions and expectations. So in this view, we can immediately think of uh, emotional conscious experiences, emotional feeling states, in this same inferential framework. And I've written about this for a few years now, that that we can think of interoceptive inference. So emotions become predictions about the causes of interoceptive signals in just the same way that experiences of the outside world are constituted by predictions of the causes of sensory signals. And this, I think, gives a nice uh, computational and mechanistic gloss on pretty old theories of emotion that originate with William James and Carl Langer, that emotion has to do with perception of physiological change in the body. These ideas have been repeatedly elaborated, so people ask about the relationship between cognitive interpretation and perception of physiological change. Um, This predictive processing view just dissolves all those distinctions and says that emotional experience is the joint content of predictions about the causes of interoceptive signals at at all levels, at all low and high levels of, of, of abstraction. And the other aspects of this that becomes important is the purpose of perceiving the body from within is really not at all to do with figuring out what's there yeah. my brain couldn't care less that my internal organs are objects and they have particular locations within you know, my my body couldn't care less about that it's not important the only thing that's important about my internal physiology is that it works that, that if you imagine my, the inside of my body is a cricket ball, it really don't care where the cricket ball is or that it's a ball. All it cares is that I'm going to catch the ball. It only cares about control and regulation of the internal state of the body. So predictions, perceptual predictions for the interior of the body are, are of a very different kind. They're instrumental, they're control-oriented, they're not epistemic, they're not to do with finding out. And I think that gets it. It's, it. For me, anyway, it's very suggestive of why um, our experiences of just being a body have this very uh, sort of non-object-based, inchoate phenomenological character compared to our experiences of the outside world. But it also suggests that, you know everything can be derived from that, that if we, if we understand the original purpose of, of predictive perception, was to control and regulate the internal state of the body. And all the other kinds of perceptual prediction are built on, upon that evolutionary imperative uh, so that ultimately the way we perceive the outside world is predicated on these mechanisms that have their fundamental objective in the regulation of our internal bodily state. And I think this is, this is really important for me because it, 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 it gets away from these I don't know, pre-theoretical associations of consciousness and perception with, with cognition, with language, with all these higher order things, maybe social interaction, and it grounds them much more in the basic mechanisms of life. Uh, so who have a nice thing that it might not just be that life provides a nice analogy with consciousness in terms of hard problems and mysteries and so on, but that there are actually very deep obligate connections between mechanisms of life, and the way we perceive consciously and unconsciously ourselves and the world.
0: Well, so now, if interoception is purpose toward what is sometimes called allostatic control, so the regulation of internal states on the basis of, is essentially homeostasis as governed by behavior and action. If that's the purpose, an emotion is essentially parasitic on these processes. An emotion like disgust, say, or Fear or anger, much of the same neural machinery is giving rise to these kinds of emotions. How do you think about emotion by this logic? What precipitates an emotion is most often, I mean, it can just be a thought, right, or a memory of of something that's happened, but its referent is usually out in the world, very likely in some social circumstance. What is the logic of emotion in terms of this picture of? prediction and control in you know our, our internal system.
1: It's a very interesting. I think it's more a research program than a question that's easy to answer in the here and now. But I think the you know the idea would be that emotions, um emotional content of any sort is ultimately marking out in our conscious experience the allostatic relevance of something in the world. An object or a social situation or a, or a course of action so that our, our brain needs to be able to to predict the allostatic consequences and here you, you're absolutely right allostasis is sort of the behavioral process of maintaining um, of homeostasis um, so our brain needs to be able to predict the allostatic consequences of everything that it every action that the body produces whether it's an internal action of autonomic regulation, whether it's an external action, a speech act, or just a behavioral act. What's that, what are the consequences of that for our physiological condition and the maintenance of viability? And I think emotional content is, is a way in which those consequences become represented in conscious experience. And they can be quite simple. So if you think of probably primordial emotions like disgust have to do with a rejection of something that you try to put inside your body that shouldn't be there because the consequence is going to be pretty bad. Um, And that's a very non-social kind of emotion, at least certain forms of disgust that have to do with eating bad things uh, don't depend so much on social context, though they can be invoked by social context um, later on. But then other more sophisticated or, or more ramified emotions um, like regret. Uh, yeah, I think about regret. It's, it's not the same as disappointment. Disappointment is, I was expecting X and I got Y, you know, like a lot of people might have done Christmas last week. Um, you can be disappointed, but regret is, has an essential counterfactual element that, oh, I, I could have done this instead, and then I would have got um, X if I'd done this. And I think certainly my own personal emotional life involves many experiences of regret and even anticipatory regret, where I regret things I haven't even done yet because I kind of assume they're going to turn out badly. And the relevance of that is that these sorts of emotional experiences depend on quite high level predictions about counterfactual situations, about social consequences, about what other people might think or believe. About me, so we can we can have an, an ordering of the of the richness of emotional experience. I think that is defined by the kinds of predictions that are brought to bear, but they're all ultimately rooted in
0: um, their relevance for physiological viability. Well, so we've been talking about the contents of consciousness and and how varied they are and and how they're shaped by top down predictive processes, perhaps even more than bottom up processes. But what do you think about the experience of, it's often described as being of pure consciousness, consciousness without content, or without obvious content? Is this something that you are skeptical exists, or do you have a place on the shelf for it? I, I think it probably does exist.
1: I don't know. I mean, unlike you, I, I've not been a very disciplined uh, meditator. I've, you know, I've tried it. Uh, a little bit, but yeah, it's not something that you probably gain very much from dabbling in. I think it's it's there will be a. It, it seems to me conceivable that there's a phenomenal state which is characterized by the absence of specific contents. Now, I, I can imagine I'm happy with the idea that that state exists. I'm somehow sceptical of people's reports of these states. Um, that and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier that we tend to somehow overestimate our ability to have insight into our phenomenal content at any particular time. But yeah, I mean, what would the, the interesting question there, which I haven't thought about a lot, is what would the computational vehicles of such a state be in terms of predictive perception? Is it the absence of predictions or is it the prediction of that nothing is causing my sensory input at that particular time? I don't know. I don't know. I have to think about that some more.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an experience that I believe I've had. I and mean, again, I agree with you that we're not subjectively incorrigible, which is to say we can be wrong about how things seem to us. We can certainly be wrong about what's actually going on to explain the character of our experience. But I would say we can be wrong about the character of our experience in important ways, which is to say that if we become more sensitive to what an experience is like, we can notice things that we weren't first noticing about it and it's not always a matter of actually changing the experience obviously there's conceptual questions here about whether or not you know being able to discriminate more is is actually finding you know qualia that were there all the time that you weren't noticing or you're actually just changing the experience when you learn how to taste wine are you having a fundamentally different experience or are you actually noticing things that you might have noticed before, or are both processes operating simultaneously? I think it's probably both.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this whole uh, predictive perception view would come down pretty firmly that, at least to some extent, your experience is actually changing because you're developing a, a different set of predictions. You know, you're, 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 your predictions are better able to distinguish uh, initially similar sets of sensory signals. So I think, yeah, it's not just that you're noticing different things, your, your experiences are changing as well.
0: I mean, to take the experience of pure consciousness, that many meditators believe they've had. People have had it, you know, on psychedelics as well, I mean, perhaps we'll, we'll touch the topic of psychedelics, because I know you've done some research there. But the question is, what I'm calling pure consciousness, was there something there that I could have noticed that was the contents of consciousness that I wasn't noticing there? But the importance of the experience doesn't so much hinge for me on whether or not Consciousness is really pure there, or really without any contents. It's more that it's clearly without any of the usual gross contents. It's quite possible to have an experience where you're no longer obviously feeling your body. there's no sensation that you are noticing, there's no sense of you know proprioception there's no sense of being located in space. In fact, the experience you're having is a consciousness denuded of those usual reference points. And that's what's so interesting about it. That's what's so expansive about it. That's why it suddenly seems so unusual to be you in that moment, because all of the normal experiences have dropped away. So seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and even thinking have dropped away. This is where, for me, the hard problem does kind of come screaming back into the conversation. On many of these accounts of what consciousness is, we should probably move to Tononi's notion of integrated information. On his account, and this is a very celebrated thesis in neuroscience and philosophy, on his account, consciousness simply is a matter of integrated information. And the more information and the more integrated, the more consciousness, presumably. But an experience of the sort that I'm describing, of pure consciousness consciousness you know whether pure or not consciousness stripped of its usual informational reference points is not the experience of diminished consciousness in fact the people who have this experience tend to celebrate it as more the quintessence of being conscious i mean it's really some kind of height of consciousness as opposed to its loss and yet the information component is certainly dialed down by any normal sense in which we use the term information. They're not things being discriminated from one another, and I guess you could say it's integrated, but there are other experiences that I could describe to you where the criteria of integration also seems to fall apart, and yet consciousness remains. So again, this is one of those definitional problems. If we're going to call consciousness a matter of integrated information, if we find an example of there's something that it's like to be you, and yet information and integration are not its hallmarks. Well, then it's kind of like defining all ravens as being black, and then we find a white one. What do we call it? A white raven or some other bird? Do you have a, any intuitions on this front?
1: Um there's a, there's an awful lot in, in what you said just there. I think if we just put aside for a second, um, trying to isolate what we might call the, the minimal experience of selfhood. You know, is there anything left after you've got rid of experiences of body and of volition and of internal narratives and, and so on and
0: so on? Now have a thought about that. Just for one point of clarification, I would distinguish this from the loss of self, which I, I hope we come to. I think you can lose your sense of self with all of the normal phenomenology Preserved, so you can be seen and hearing and tasting and even thinking just as vividly, and yet the sense of self, or at least one sense of self, can drop away completely. This is a different experience I'm talking about.
1: Yes, I mean that sounds like flow state type experiences in some way, Um, but maybe we we can get onto that. But if we move indeed to to IIT and think about uh, how that might speak to these these issues of. Pure consciousness and, and whether these experiences serve as some kind of counterexample, some phenomenological counterexample to IIT. I think that's, that's very interesting to think about. And it gets at whether we consider IIT, integrated information theory, to be primarily a theory of conscious level, of how conscious a system is, um, or of conscious content, uh, or of their interaction. Perhaps it's best to start just by summarizing in, you know, in a couple of sentences the claims of IAT, because you're absolutely right. It's, become, it's come to occupy a very interesting position in the academic landscape of consciousness research. A lot of people talk about it, um, although in the last couple of meetings of the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness, certainly the last one, there was surprisingly little about it. And yeah, I have a thought why that might be, which we, we can come on to. It's probably worth trying to explain just very briefly uh, what integrated information theory IIT tries to do. And what it tries to do, it starts with a bunch of phenomenological axioms. So it doesn't start by asking the question, you know, what's in the brain and how does that go along with consciousness? It tries to identify um, axiomatic features of conscious experience, things that should be self evident, and then try to, from there, derive. Uh, what are the necessary and sufficient um, mechanisms, or really what's the sufficient mechanistic basis given these axioms? IAT will call these postulates. There are actually, f- in the current version of IAT, five of these axioms, but I think we just consider a couple of them, and these are the, the fundamental ones, information and integration. And these particular, you can call them axioms, or you can call them just generalizations of you know what all conscious experiences seem to have in common. Information integration. So the axiom of information is that every conscious experience is highly informative for the organism in the specific sense of ruling out a vast uh, repertoire of alternative experiences. You're having this experience right now instead of all the other experiences you could have, uh, you could have had, you have had, you will have, you're having this particular experience Experience and the occurrence of that experience is generating an enormous amount of information because it's ruling out so many alternatives.
0: As you go through this, I think it will be useful for me to just flag a few points where, where this phenomenologically breaks down for me. So, and again, the, the reference here is to kind of non ordinary experiences in, in meditation and with psychedelics, but The meditative experiences, for me at least, have become quite ordinary. I can really talk about them in real time. So the uniqueness of each conscious experience as being highly informative because it rules out so many other conscious experiences. In meditation, in many respects, that begins to break down because what you're noticing is a core of sameness to every experience. What you're focusing on is the qualitative character of consciousness that is unchanged by experience. And so the distinctness of an experience isn't what is so salient. What is salient is the unchanging quality of consciousness in its openness, its centerlessness, its vividness. And one analogy I've used here, and if you've ever been in a restaurant which has had a full-length mirror across one of the walls and you haven't noticed that the mirror was a mirror and you just assume that the restaurant was twice as big as it in fact is. The moment you notice it's a mirror, you notice that everything you thought was the world is just a pane of glass. It's just a play of light on a wall. And so all those people aren't really people or they're not extra people. They're in the room just being reflected over there. And one way to describe that shift is almost a kind of loss of information, right? It's just it's like there's no depth to what's happening in the glass. Nothing's really happening in the glass. And meditation does begin to converge on that kind of experience with everything. The Tibetan Buddhists talk about one taste, being that there's basically there's a single taste to everything when you really pay attention, and it is because the, these intrinsic properties of consciousness are what have become salient not the differences between experiences. So I don't know if that just sounds like an explosion of gibberish to you, but it's a way in which when I begin to hear this first criterion of Tononi's stated, as you have, it begins to not map on to what I'm describing as some of the clearest moments of consciousness. Again, not a diminishment of consciousness. That's that's very interesting. I, and that those... States of being
1: aware of the unchanging nature of consciousness. I think that that's really very important. I'm not sure it's misaligned with Tanoni's intuition here, because I think the idea of, of informativeness is so, if you think about it, I mean, what, there's one way to think about it, which is that specific experience that you're having in that meditative state of becoming aware of one taste or of the unchanging nature. Uh, that underlies all that experiences. That itself is a specific experience. It's a very specific experience. You, know, you have to have trained in meditation for a long time to have that experience. And the having of that experience is equally distinctive. It's ruling out all the other experiences when you're not having that experience. Um, so it's not so much how informative it is for you at the psychological level. It's a, It's a much more reductionist interpretation of information i think the other way to 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 get at that is to think of it from the bottom up from the simple systems upwards and Tanoni uses an analogy which i think has got some value uh, you know why is a photodiode not conscious well for a photodiode the whole world in the world outer world it's either dark or light it's not the photodiode doesn't have any experience of darkness and lightness it's just you know on or off one or zero um And generalizing that, that a particular state has the informational content it has in virtue of all the things it isn't, rather than the specific thing that it is. So we can think about this in terms of color, you know, red is red, not because of any intrinsic redness to uh, a combination of wavelengths, but because of all the other combinations of wavelengths that are excluded by that particular combination of wavelengths and i think this is this is really interesting and this point goes actually precedes integrated information theory goes right back to the dynamic core ideas of Tenone and edelman which was the thing that first attracted me to go and work at san diego nearly 20 years ago and even then the point was made that an experience of pure darkness or you know complete sensory deprivation where there's no sensory input no perceptual content call this a hypothetical Conscious state for now. I don't know how to what extent it's approximated by any meditative states. That has exactly the same informational content as does a very vivid, busy conscious scene walking down the high street because it's ruling out the same number of alternatives. And it may seem subjectively different, less informative because there's nothing going on. But in terms of the number of alternative states that it's ruling out, it's the same. So I think there's a there's a sense in which we can interpret information, uh, yeah, this this axiom of informativeness, as applying to a whole range of different kinds of conscious contents. Of course, this does get us onto tricky territory about whether we're talking about a theory of level or a, or a theory of content. But this idea is, is yeah, I, I think it can account for your. Situation, though it does ask the question about: Can we really get it at content specifically
0: there? So the number of states over which you can range as a conscious mind defines how much information is encoded when you're in one of those states. That's right. That 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 would be the claim, and you know you can think of it um, in
1: terms. Of, so one of the quantities associated with the, this technical definition of information theory is entropy, and entropy is simply measures the, you know, the, uh, the range of possible options and the likelihood of being in any particular one of those options. And um, so information, so entropy is a measure of the, the kind of uncertainty associated with a system state. And um, so you know a photodiode can only be in one of two possible states. Uh, a single die can be in six possible states. A combination of, of two die can be in 12 possible states. And this, this, there's actually I want to link here slightly longer because it's in these technical details about information theory that IIT I think runs aground because it's trying to address the hard problem. It's because of this identity relationship that Tononi argues for between integrated information. We'll get onto integration in a second, but let's just think about information. It's because of this identity relationship in which he says, consciousness simply is integrated information, um, measured the right way. That the whole theory becomes empirically untestable and lame. Because if we're to make the claim that the content and level of consciousness that a system has is identical to the amount of integrated information that it has, that means in order to assess this, I need to know not only what state the system is in and what state it was in previous time steps let's say we measure it over time but I also need to know all the states the system could be in but hasn't been in I need to know all its possible combinations and that's that's you know that's just impossible for anything other than really simple toy systems. There's a metaphysical claim which goes along with this too, which is that information has ontological status. You know, that, this, is, this goes back to John Wheeler and It From Bit and so on, that the fact that uh, a system could occupy a certain state but hasn't is still causally contributing to the conscious level and state of the system now. And that's a very strong Claim and it's a very interesting claim. I mean, who knows what the ontological status of information in the universe will turn out to be?
0: But you also have an added problem of how you bound this possibility. So, for instance, so not only can you not know all the possible states my conscious mind could be in so as to determine the information density of the current state, but what counts as possible if, in fact, it is possible to augment my brain even now. I just don't happen to know how to do that, but it's possible to do that, or it'll be possible next week. Do we have to incorporate those possibilities into the definition of my consciousness in the current moment? I'm guessing, but probably not. I think on, on the
1: theory, as I understand it, the repertoire of possible states is with respect to the mechanism as it is, not as... not how the mechanism might be in the
0: future. Sorry, there's one problem I've always had with Tononi, and I guess it was with Edelman before him, is that the integration of information has to happen over a certain time period, but that time period is just kind of stipulated more or less axiomatically. And who's to say it couldn't be integrated over 500 years, right? And so we have a mind that is that supervenes upon you know, everything that happens on the internet in a 500-year period, or the more absurd example I gave in one of my books is, you know, geological processes. I mean, just imagine under some definition that the rumblings in the earth amount to integrated information. Does that mean that the plate tectonics is the, the basis of some sort of conscious mind? It seems kind of post hoc to stipulate, no, this has to happen in 500 milliseconds.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that, and that, that's comes down to, I think, the, one of the other axioms that, that you see in more recent versions of IIT, which is exclusion, that there is a particular spatiotemporal granularity, um, which is the spatiotemporal grain at which integrated information is maximized, is the only one that counts. And that's, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a bit suspicious of this axiomatic approach anyway. I'm not sure to what extent we can conceive of any of these properties as self-evident with respect to conscious experiences and certainly this spatiotemporal grain one i think um, is potentially the the weakest um, of all that he puts forward but yeah i think this is these are really the problems you get into when you when you try to go after the hard problem and you try to justify this identity relationship because yeah you come up with with these very weird potentially absurd scenarios which could perhaps be taken as reductios of the whole thing i mean there there are other ones that you can could glom on a whole bunch of neurons to your brain in fact this is just what you said a little bit earlier you could just glom them on and let's say you know they actually they never fire um, but they could potentially in some situation but they've never actually done anything nonetheless iit would predict that your conscious experience has changed because of that because the repertoire would have also changed that's a very weird counterintuitive prediction now, i don't want to rule out a theory of consciousness because it makes counterintuitive predictions i mean that would be silly too but i think that the more pernicious aspect of it is that if we insist on i mean let's let's take a slightly weaker version of it which is which i still think is is highly interesting which is that experiences do seem phenomenologically to exhibit information and integration and we can argue about whether this is you know maybe less the case for certain kinds of meditative experiences than other kinds of experiences but in general experiences do rule out you know do pick out one particular conscious scene among a large number of possibilities and they do so in a generally integrated way again maybe counterexamples in split brains and whatnot but these are i think quite general phenomenological observations, I, I hesitate to say they're axiomatic because I think they probably aren't, but they're very general. And so you know, in a weaker view of IIT, I think it's very useful to take those observations and then ask what kind of mathematics would operationalize them? And can we measure anything like that in, in the brain? And if you take that weaker view, then you don't have to worry about all the things that trip up the strong view of IIT from the outset. So you know, I could compute a measure of iit you know, let's call it phi you know, that's what he calls it after all now i can easily write down equations for phi that only depend on observations of what a system has actually done on what we might call the empirical or stationary distribution of a system you know, this is work actually we've done with my my colleague adam barrett at sussex we've and other people have done this as well now we've developed approximations to phi or versions of phi that retain the same insights. They're capturing a balance, or rather the coexistence of informativeness and integration. But they're just based on a different assumption about what the relevant repertoire of states of the system is. In this case, we just say, well, I don't care about the hard problem. I'm just trying to map this interesting phenomenological insight onto mechanisms. So all I need is just to measure what states the system has actually been in. And then I can start to calculate these things. I think this is a very useful thing to do. Of course, it turns out that when we try to do this, uh, the measures don't work very well. um, Because of other things that the the theory involves, like we have to find uh, the partition of the system that um, maximally differentiates between considering the system as a whole compared to its parts. That's how Technically, the the observational axiom of integration gets in. We look at at part-whole relationships, myriological relationships um, in terms of information across time. It's kind of annoying, but also illuminating that when you develop empirically applicable measures that are based on these insights, in practice, they really don't seem to work very well, which is a bit of a warning sign because what you'd want for a theory with legs is that the closer you get to operationalizing it, the more empirical purchase it should have, not the less empirical purchase it should have. So, I mean, this is one reason I think that we've seen a bit less IIT stuff out there in the last year or so, because it's just very, very difficult. It just doesn't, if you threw it as a hammer and hit the problem of consciousness, it doesn't sort of split apart very nicely. And this may well be because we haven't got the right approximations yet. I still think there's something in there. But if you just go after the hard problem, you're not going to get anywhere with it.
0: Isn't there an additional wrinkle here where some version of panpsychism comes sneaking in because if consciousness is really just identical to integrated information at any level of integration and information, then the lights come on very early and in entirely piecemeal ways so that you could imagine thousands or even millions of loci of consciousness at levels far below what we think of as being the level of consciousness in a human brain, and then you could imagine other systems that now we're potentially getting down to David Chalmers and his conscious thermostats, depending on how you want to define integration and information. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I I
1: completely agree that that the theory, as expounded by uh, by Giulio Tononi and and you know, also more recently by, um, by David Chalmers and by Christoph Koch as well, they, they take this panpsychist interpretation, which, which you have to take if you, if you do buy this identity relationship that consciousness is integrated information, because then, yeah, you're going to find small amounts of it in various unexpected places. You won't find it everywhere, because not all systems have a non-zero integrated information. You can design systems that have no integrated information. In fact, you can, you can do a version of the zombie experiment here. You could say, I can, I can maybe unwrap all the recurrent dynamics of a biological brain into a single feed-forward mm-hmm. network where information just flows in one direction.
0: Well, we almost have that, when you think about the human cerebellum, the little brain off the back of our big brain, which actually has four times the number of neurons the rest of the brain has, there are very few people who imagine that there's something that it's like to be the human cerebellum, and yet it has all of the gross features of a brain, but apparently it doesn't have the necessary integration to the basis of consciousness, or at least so it would seem.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I always find that just really amazing, that every time I think of just that brute fact that the cerebellum has, yeah, four times more neurons than the rest of the brain. I mean, then it seems crazy to me, but it just... I think, underlines that it's these simple gross features of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology just aren't the relevant ones. Um, Of course, the cerebellum differs in very many ways from the rest of the the cortical and subcortical system, not just in its association with something like integrated information. But certainly a a relevant feature is that the cerebellum seems to be constituted by these relatively functionally independent circuits. Um, And yeah, I, I don't know, people always rule out the cerebellum from, from everything, but you know, there's a sort of dirty secret in neuroimaging experiments. I don't know if you, you found this yourself, that you, you often see the cerebellum light up in yeah. contrast to various sources. And it's almost always completely ignored because we, ah, it's not relevant, it's just the cerebellum. <laughs> so and in,
0: I know the feeling.
1: <laughs> yeah, like the anterior insulate as well, which is, you know, there are all these things. In sing- I mean, I think there's probably something more in that story um, than we know. But yeah, back to, back to panpsychism. It's, it's an interesting thought experiment that if you, if you take this, this identity relation, you will start to attribute consciousness very broadly. Um, but yeah, I don't know what you do with that. Again, I'm, I'm always trying to evaluate these, these philosophical positions and, and theories on whether they are fecund in the sense, do they lead to a productive set of experiments that that one might do, or do they not? And I think a view like panpsychism doesn't really motivate any particular interesting experiment that one might do. So it just sort of sits there as an interesting metaphysical possibility, and who knows?
0: Yeah, as far as a bullet to bite, in my view, it's one of the more attractive ones. It's not, again, it doesn't really do anything Operationally, it's, it doesn't suggest that the world would appear different or should appear different than it does if everything is humming or virtually everything is humming with some kind of base experience. I wouldn't expect my computer to start talking to me if it were something that's like to be the computer. I would expect it to be doing exactly what it's doing now, given its constraints. But yeah, it's counterintuitive, but it's not the most obnoxious thing on offer in the wilderness of counterintuitive things. Did you want to go through any more of Tononi's criteria, or should we segue to another topic? The one topic I do want to hit before I let you go, and I realize I've taken the better part of your day here, well, there's really two. I I want to talk about the self and the ways in which you differentiate parts of of the self or the ways in which we use that term, and I'd like to hit AI before we get to the end here. Should we move on, or do you want to say anything anything more about Tononi? Let's move on just just
1: with one let me say one final thing about it, which is that um yeah at the same time as developing this this i think very interesting but but difficult to test theory, there are whole sets of empirical approaches which do seem to shed some light on the mechanistic basis of conscious level which 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 are associated with these basic principles of IIT. So there's this thing called the perturbation complexity index, which is basically, you know, you use transcranial magnetic stimulations. It's basically like injecting a very strong and short pulse of energy into the cortex. And then you listen to the echo of that pulse with with EEG. You know, you bang on the brain with an electrical hammer and you listen to the echo. And it turns out that if you quantify the spatiotemporal richness of that echo in specific ways, you get a pretty good empirically robust number measure of of consciousness this gets us right back to where our conversation started about you know general anesthesia and distinguishing conscious level from from wakefulness this is all very productive and you know we've been doing the same thing without the stimulation just calculating the complexity the signal diversity of spontaneous eeg tracks in a very uh, very nice way changes in conscious level and um it also seems to oddly in the psychedelic state go up a bit from the the normal uh, baseline of wakeful conscious level or not so oddly or not so oddly although it's not an evidence for as was written up by a number of people they said we've found evidence for a higher state of consciousness uh, you know it's not that we've we found increased neuronal signal diversity but indeed it's 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 maybe what you'd expect to find given the phenomenology of the of the psychedelic state so all this is just by way of saying that i think the framework of IAT is motivating a number of interesting empirical developments that tell us something about the neuronal basis of conscious level and how it interacts with content. You don't have to bite the the whole of the bullet to get there.
0: Well, I asked the obvious question now. Has anyone done that experiment for the cerebellum?
1: It's a good question. I, I you know, I don't think, I don't think they have. I don't think they have. I wouldn't, don't hold me to that,
0: but I... I don't know if there's a problem doing TMS on the cerebellum. I can't recall people doing that or recording EEG from it. I guess you'd get a bunch of muscle artifact, given where it is, but... Also, all these measures, even when they have
1: empirical utility, they typically only do so when you, you know, you're contrasting different states. So you know, it, it might be interesting to see how the cerebellum behaves differently when the whole organism is awake versus asleep but I'm not sure what just looking at the activity of the cerebellum per se would, would tell you. But no, I think it's a yeah interesting thing to consider.
0: There was one other point there in differentiating the level of consciousness and contents so that the, I, I see how this information integration theory can track changes in level of consciousness. But when you're talking about contents, I can certainly imagine and believe I've experienced states of consciousness where the contents are a mess and certainly less informative in the normal sense of that term biologically and behaviorally and perceptually than is ordinarily the case. And yet it's no less vivid. You know, so again, I'm thinking of certain psychedelic experiences We could think of certain neurological conditions where there's certainly something that it's like to be the person, and in fact, perhaps just as much that it's like to be the person. But what it's like is just a buzzing confusion, which has very little behavioral utility. And there's a kind of randomness to the information content when you compare it to a more orderly state of wakeful attention. Does that pose any problem, or, or am I just sliding among different uses of the term information?
1: Perhaps. I think in, in the sense that we discussed earlier that however sort of introspectively informative a state might appear to you, that's probably different from the technical uh, usage of information in, in the theory. But certainly when it comes to what IIT says about content, that there is a theory of conscious content within IIT, and it has to do with with, you know, Shapes in 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 qualia space, what Tennedy would call qualia space. But the problem there is that it's even less testable, I think, than taking IIT as a theory of conscious level. It, it becomes very very detached from empirical data, or at least very non-specific with respect to empirical data. Which which is sort of why, when I'm thinking about level and content, um, if I'm thinking about conscious content. I think it's more productive to think of that in terms of a theoretical framework that is more directly addressing the, the problem of content, which for me is, is, is the Bayesian brain, is predictive processing, because you know, you, you're not kind of contorting a, a grand theory to account for everything. So you know, you, it's, it's more of a pick and mix approach to consciousness science, and hopefully everything coalesces into a, into a single framework in the end. But for now, I prefer to sort of use whatever sheds the most light on these mechanism phenomenology relations.
0: Okay, well, let's move on from content to the self, which is this third category of thinking about consciousness that people find very confusing. I just want to read a paragraph you wrote in one of your articles, right? There is the bodily self, which is the experience of being a body and of having a particular body. There is the perspectival self which is the experience of perceiving the world from a particular first-person point of view. The volitional self involves experiences of intention and of agency, of urges to do this or that, and of being the causes of things that happen. At higher levels, we encounter narrative and social selves. The narrative self is where the I comes in, as the experience of being a continuous and distinctive person over time, built from a rich set of autobiographical memories. And the social self... Is that aspect of self experience that is refracted through the perceived minds of others, shaped by our unique social milieu? So I think that's an incredibly useful paragraph and a way of partitioning these different experiences we have where we're tempted to talk about being a self and we use terms like personal pronoun I. I think there's some fluidity between these various concepts, but let's talk about them because. I talk a lot about the self being an illusion, very much in a Buddhist sense, and of there being an experience of a loss of a sense of self, and when one loses the sense of self, one loses the sense of, another word here is ego that people refer to, which is arguably the goal of meditation practice, and it's something that happens to people in various psychedelic experiences one doesn't lose all of these selves that you're mentioning. And it's sort of useful to see what is on the table here for jettisoning. Actually, one question here. Have you ever taken psychedelics? I mean, what does the possibility of losing a sense of self mean to you? Is that something you've experienced in flow states or in any other state?
1: Yeah, I I think it, I always thought of it in relation to the fact that the experience of being a self is is not one thing and so i completely agree with you that when people say you know, they're experiencing an egoless state or they've lost a sense of self one has to ask which aspects of selfhood uh, or which aspects of selfhood are being talked about here i think in, in flow states you know during practicing sport you can lose certain aspects of of self some of the more narrative aspects of self perhaps um and then you know, in, in other states maybe other aspects of selfhood uh can go to just just to directly answer answer your question um about psychedelics not frequently but but yes um for the sole purpose of experiencing for myself what manipulations of conscious experience uh, Derived from from those sorts of compounds, and you know, I did find it incredibly illuminating and interesting. More so, I have to say, for me, in the way I experienced the external world, than in how I experienced um, myself within it. But you know, perhaps that's that's just my idiosyncratic report of that. But I think the idea of specifying these different ways we experience being a self. And there are probably others too, but, but that's, there's one summary there that, that you kindly read out. The first purpose of doing that is to underline that this idea this, that some of us may have, we haven't reflected on what it is to be a self very much, that the self is unified, that if I'm going to experience selfhood, it's going to comprise of, of all these things that by definition, but that that's just wrong. That our experience of being a self day to day, if we're healthy without psychiatric or neurological illness, well, it's still constituted by all these different aspects, which can be manipulated relatively independently, either experimentally or through drugs, and which can uh, which can be affected specifically by different kinds of of brain damage and psychiatric illness as well. Doesn't mean the whole self has gone. And this is a very, for me anyway, a very helpful way to think about selfhood because it, it it just makes the point that my experience of being a self is constructed in just the same way as my experience of the outside world. It's put together in virtue of a number of predictions about the causes of self-related signals that are then bound together in an overall perception of of meanness. Of this is this is. You know, this is me, this is myself. But it's all built on a whole range of different processes happening in parallel. And, you know, how far can you strip these levels away and still have some core experience of selfness left? I think you can probably go pretty far. I mean, you, can, you can certainly experience selfhood without having a rich social environment, I think. Uh, some people would disagree with that, probably. Chris Frith might disagree with that. But it's hard for me anyway to see that our experiences of ourselves through the eyes of others is a necessary component of selfhood.
0: There's two questions here. One, can you have a rich experience of self without ever having had a social experience? Or can you have a rich experience of self having had a social experience but no longer having one? Like a critical period of development being fulfilled, but then you live as a hermit, never seeing another person again. I think in that case, it's obvious there's no necessary loss of self just by being physically isolated from other people, provided you actually grew up in some normal circumstance. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean,
1: it's like Molyneux's question for, um, uh, for social self, isn't it? I mean, so certainly I, you know, I completely agree. It's, it's an interesting question. If you grew up in an environment without any social interaction, I would imagine that you may never develop the capability to to experience social dimensions of selfhood. Uh, that may well be. But I, does that mean you have no sense of self? Probably not. I think there are there are many other levels of, of selfhood, which probably just don't depend on social contacts at all. And you know, we can get quite low down to experiences of volition and agency. So when I make, you know, I know you've, you've thought a lot about this and written a lot about this, Sam, but we have experiences of intending to make actions and we've experiences of being the cause of things that happen. These are quite subpersonal aspects of selfhood. We don't have to associate them with being a continuous individual over time. They're just associated, they're perceptions of actions uh, that have relatively internal causes rather than external causes. But that's an element of, of self that doesn't seem to depend on episodic memory or social context. And of course, that can go away too. You can have um, people with akinetic mutism who don't display any kind of voluntary action at all, or the, you know, the other, other end of the scale, um, people with schizophrenia or alien hand syndrome who make voluntary actions and don't experience them as voluntary. But again, it's not one, one can, I think, imagine that's not core to self. Uh, and then we have the, the first person perspective is that the core of self? Is it that we experience the world? from a particular first-person point of view. It may be associated with a control of attention, something like that. I think this is getting close to maybe what might be intrinsic to any kind of selfhood. But even then, I'm not completely sure, uh, because certainly we can manipulate first-person perspective quite readily. People have out-of-body experiences, autoscopic hallucinations. Um, We can induce things like that in the lab using virtual reality they still have a first-person perspective. So I'm unclear whether that can be gotten rid of. But then the really basic stuff, I think, comes down to these experiences of body. And certain we can experience our body from the outside as an object in the world. You know, this is my hand, but which is part of my body. We know that can be manipulated. These classic experiments like the rubber hand illusion show that it's surprisingly easy to... Uh, change the brain's perception of what is and what is not part of its body but really at the core of all this comes back to what we were talking about a bit earlier about the fundamental phylogenetic justification for having brains in the first place in terms of the regulation of internal state and the, the and how this is based on perceiving in a control oriented way um the relevance of everything towards maintaining. Uh, the physiological state in the bounds compatible with life. Thomas Metzinger has talked about this, I think, in terms of existence bias—that you know, that we have this fundamental drive to stay alive, and all our perception is warped to that kind of existence bias in one way or another. And for me, that's probably the essence of self that I don't know you can ever get rid of. That we just have this inchoate sense of being a body, being being this flesh and blood organism that is persisting over time, independently of a first-person perspective, independently of volition, independently of memory. The only counterexamples I can think to that are these weird pathological cases like Cotard syndrome, where people believe they're dead. Um, They believe they no longer exist, which is, of course, a self-contradiction, but nonetheless, they still believe it. And what Perceptual experiences lead them to come to this belief. Uh, the few studies that have been done um, implicate uh, it, problems with this interoceptive regulation and control of the internal state of the body, and I think that's that's a, a big clue to what may lie really at the bottom of our experience of
0: selfhood. I've never known what to make of the claims to that condition. Whether it's some version of it's like a interoceptive alien hand syndrome where you're just disowning everything that's happening in the center of you. I don't know what to make of that. It's one of those cases where you're not sure that words mean what they seem like they mean when people are describing their experience.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. It's it's, it's I, I've never met personally anybody in that state, so I also a little bit wondering the same as you. What what do they really mean? But still, it's the the consistency with which. Cotard syndrome patients make these claims is suggestive that there is there is some very peculiar phenomenology going on there.
0: Well, so I'd like to just linger here on these five terms: bodily, perspectival, volitional, narrative, and social selves, because my sense of self and its absence can I can kind of connect these dots in a way that may seem odd. I mean, for instance, the bodily self. So I've already said that there are experiences where the body is rather vividly absent now whether or not it's actually absent is another question but the experience is one of just having completely lost touch with the body and i guess if we could remember it there's probably experiences in dreams that people have where there's no, no sense of having a dream body but you can definitely have these experiences in meditation where you know your body has been zeroed out and you're having the experience of it's even less than floating there's nothing to float, just this kind of vast expanse of consciousness without a sense of being embodied, and yet there can be no less sense of being a perspectival self if you're thinking, uh, presumably you could have a narrative self come online if, if you're noticing episodic memories or thinking about your future. Thomas Messinger, who I know you know, was also on the podcast, and uh, we had a conversation very much on this topic and I think it occurred to me just talking to him, it was not something I thought of before, that for me, the most rudimentary feeling of self, which is the thing that drops away when meditation's actually working, or when you're noticing what is there to be noticed about consciousness prior to conceptual thought, the thing that drops away is the sense of, here I guess I would unify the perspectival and volitional selves, the sense that I am the source of attention and volition, that in paying attention to objects in physical space, or even paying attention to sensations internal to the body, I am the upstream locus of attention. And that seems to be of a piece with the feeling that I am the upstream source of volition, and therefore I'm the agent that can have free will, that can choose to do one thing or the other. In losing that sense, you don't lose the difference between paying attention to something or not, and you don't lose the difference between volitional and non-volitional actions. So, I mean, the difference between having a tremor and having a volitional motor movement is still a difference, but the sense that there is a, is a self that is the agent exercising those acts of attention, acts of volition, that can drop away. I'm just wondering what you make of that.
1: Uh, that's yeah, I think that's really fascinating. The description of, of what those states are like, it's seems to be getting it, again, this idea that the, it's the control of attentional focus, whether that's internal or external, that is very central to this, or, or rather that's what you can you can lose. You can lose the sense of control of attention,
0: but there is still the effect of attention on, on action. It's certainly not the same thing that schizophrenics report, which is this being imposed from the outside. So I, I can imagine that if you hooked me up to some computer that was driving my attention and volition on its own, you know, I'm no longer in charge you know, physiologically, I would notice that difference, and it would be certainly an unpleasant one, so, like, to take a volitional action, the hallmark of an action being volitional is that it's associated with intentions. So the intentions still have to be there for it to be categorized as volitional, for at least most volitional actions. But it's just, from this point of view, it's clear that intentions themselves merely arise without an agent authoring them.
1: Yeah, which I think is probably quite a... Uh a detailed and deep insight into what intentions, if they are anything, actually are. Um, you know, they, they don't emerge from, from some soul or some original source of, of willed action at all. They, they emerge in our conscious experience just in the same way that other conscious experiences emerge. And they emerge reflecting motor intentions which lead to actions that have causes that arise from the internal mechanics of the, of the brain and the body more so than from external causes. So that, that seems to make perfect sense to me that, that you can still think about volitional actions without falling into this naive assumption that there's some essence of self which is causing those volitional actions to happen. Uh, I, you know, I think that's, that's probably exactly right. I mean, from my perspective, if I think about volitional actions, or, or rather the experience of, of volition, I'm, see, that's the thing. In thinking about the relation between volition, agency, and will, the problem has always been to resist the temptation to think about will or our experience of will as causing something. It's, it's much richer, I think, more productive to think about, well, what? Under what circumstances and constraints do we have experiences of volition and agency? And so you can then think about them as as perceptual inferences in just the same way that we have all sorts of other uh, perceptual inferences.
0: Also, it seems like much of it is retrospective as well. So, for instance, I, like I just reached for a bottle of water and took a sip, and that is a, really the quintessential volitional action. But I noticed that my experience of it was, as a volitional action, was fairly retrospective in in that I was not vividly aware of the intention to do so arising, but I noticed that after I had done it, the behavior seemed in harmony with, I mean, it it was clearly not something that had been imposed on me, right? It would have felt different if the alien hand had reached for the bottle of water. Much of this is a matter of conforming, uh, probably your predictive model works pretty well here, it's a matter of conforming to some internal model of what's about to happen. The absence of having generated an internal model would be the experience of having this thing imposed on you.
1: Right, I think that that's exactly right. If you think about exactly that kind of canonical voluntary action, you just reach to pick up something. Something really interesting about that, which is that in the moment, you're probably not having this vivid experience of, of will, right? It's something that when you reflect on, oh, that happened. Um, you know, when I have the most vivid experiences of, of volition and will, it's when I'm probably facing a really difficult decision or trying to exert a lot of cognitive control and not do something rather than do something that, that comes naturally. And just to take that specific example again, you pick up the bottle of water. There's a whole bunch of relevant sensory information uh, about that act. There is, even if it's just in your periphery, there's some visual information that your hand has moved over there and picked something up. There's tactile information when you grasp the bottle. There's proprioceptive and kinesthetic information about your joint positions and angles and, and their dynamics, how they're, how they're changing. Um, there's probably some auditory feedback as well when you, when you pick up the bottle. And of course, there are motor commands themselves, um, motor references. And it's it's plausible to think that one's experiences of of volition is just the, the brain's best guess, the inference to the best explanation of all those sensory signals put together. And that you could probably lose any one or two of them and still have some experiences of volition. This gets at a key distinction, I think, in these, in these sorts of ideas, which is can you have experiences of volition and agency even without motor intentions? And uh, with um, actually, with some my, my colleagues at Sussex, with Warwick Roseboom and Kesuke Suzuki, we're, we're using virtual reality to try to explore some of these situations, and, and Peter Lush as well, where we have virtual reality hands that you feel a sense of ownership for uh, that occasionally make. Plausible voluntary actions that you didn't yourself make, and then we can measure whether they show the characteristics of voluntary action. Do you see things like intentional binding, you know, where you where you perceive um, self caused events to be closer together in time than events that are not self caused? Do you get something
0: like a rubber hand illusion for volitional action? There,
1: you yeah, you do. You get you, you basically it seems like what you get, and we're still doing this this work now. But it seems like what you get is an equivalent amount of intentional binding, which is to say that this virtual hand moves and presses a button and then a sound happens. Um, And you then judge when in time that sound happened. In in a situation where the virtual hand moves itself and you don't move, you know that you haven't moved your hand, So we haven't been able to induce a sort of full illusion of volitional movement where you don't even notice that you didn't make the movement. But even though you know that you didn't move the hand, you still see a shift in in timing towards the action onset, even though you didn't move your hand there.
0: I would imagine if you had people moving their hands, but you just moved the virtual hand much more or slightly differently than the actual movement, subjects would own obviously it would have to be in register to some degree, but there'd be a certain degree of being out of register that would be owned without Internal comment by the subject as his or her own action.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's going to be a a sort of range of. uh, Again, this falls out quite nicely from this predictive processing view, where predictions are made with a specific degree of precision, and and that can certainly be estimated and altered as well. uh, So that if sensory signals seem to be unreliable, then the predictions will be less precise. And actually, in in that whole framework, attention turns out to have a lot to do with with estimations of the precision of data. Um, And so there might be very nice formulations of attentional control within predictive perception that have to do with the brain predicting that, let's say, my proprioceptive um, signals have suddenly high precision, in which case my predictions will be fulfilled. And I will actually move compared to to not moving. But sorry, that's getting us onto slightly different territory there.
0: Well, so before we move on to AI, I just want to hit this topic of the social self for a moment, because that strikes me as quite different from the other ones we're talking about in the sense that not only is it dependent upon one's interactions with other people in the world, but it is more... A matter of uh, some people talk about states of self as opposed to having a coherent social self because of just how differently one can feel in different contexts and relationships. You know, many of us play different roles in life. You know, you might be a father or a husband or a professor or an employee or a son. And there's just many different contexts you can be in as a self. And we find that very different properties of our minds come on and offline in those situations where you can feel super confident in one context and the antithesis of confidence in another and have those very different states be almost like guaranteed attractor states of those relationships where there's some people you're with where you're more or less always feel like your best self and some people you're with where you you're kind of guaranteed to not have access to almost everything you like about yourself and so people can shift in and out of these states but i would argue it's still the same if you feel like an i in one you're going to feel like an i in another it's the perspectival volitional perhaps bodily and even narrative self or selves that move or seem to move stably into those different social contexts and get buffeted around by the different parameters. How do you think about the social self? I think that's very nicely put. I love the idea of, of attractor states
1: for different elaborations or expressions of, of social selfhood, because I think you're absolutely right that, that it's, it's probably that aspect of, of selfhood uh, that is most open to being shaped by one's immediate external context. I'll move from one room to another, I'll leave my house and go to work and I'll inhabit a different social context, but I will still have the same body and, and I will still have the same first person perspective. So the perceptual predictions that underlie those aspects of self are going to be more stable than the experience of social self, which, for which the context is going to change all the time. So I think that that points very nicely to the, to the fact that that Certain aspects of selfhood can be more malleable than others, and might even, as you say, just switch quite fluidly from one to the other now i I was more thinking of it before you you, you made those nice comments i'd been more thinking of it just in terms of an aspect of self that that can be present or absent to different degrees. i mean we, we can sometimes think of conditions like autism as as having a a, a different kind of social self where you know, people with autism can indeed still read emotional expressions so on, but they they don't seem to perceive others' mental states in quite the same way. But I think you, you're absolutely right. The same applies to, to us all the time too. That we can we can switch social context, we switch social self. The other interesting thing that this gets at, though, is the extent to which we experience ourselves as unchanging over time. As you said, there's still this I that that seems continuous uh, in all these social contexts. And in fact, I think when people first encounter this idea of of, what it is to have a conscious self, part of what seems distinctive about experiences of self is this continuity over time. We expect our experiences of the outside world to change all the time as we move around. But we somehow expect our experiences of self to be relatively stable. Now, I think there's a sense in which they are more stable, and again, the lower you go towards the regulation of the internal state of the body, probably the more stable they are too. But I also have the suspicion that we are biased, perceptually biased, for good evolutionary reasons to overestimate the degree of self-continuity that we have. Um, and I've been recently thinking about this in terms of, of change blindness. So there's this beautiful experiment, I'm sure you know, and probably many of your, your listeners have as well of, of change blindness, where you can, for instance, have a visual scene uh, and the background might slowly change color from red to green or red to blue or something like that. And if the change is slow enough and you don't know that it's going to happen,
0: you don't notice it. You don't notice the change at all. Alternately, you can have it where if it's masked, it can be a sudden change of removing probably 10 or 15% of the visual field. Or like you can remove actual people from the lawn or whatever's in the picture. Or you can move, or you can move a tree. That's right. And people don't notice. You
1: have these mud splash experiments where exactly you introduce a big transient and you can get away with, with murder. But these, it's these slow changes that I find actually a bit more interesting because y- you're looking at this thing the whole time And of course, the question comes up, did your experience change and you just didn't notice that your experience was changing or did your experience not change until it was pointed out to you? And I I tend to favor the the first account that perception of change is not the same thing as change of perception. It's perfectly consistent to have changing perception and not be aware that your perception is changing because change is just another kind of perception. And I think this probably applies in spades to how we experience self that we are just strongly biased towards perceiving ourselves as not changing very much. So we have this kind of, this, this hugely powerful self-change blindness. So I think our experience of self, even probably at some of these lower levels, can change quite a lot. But we're just not going to experience that change.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually even worse than that. I think the sense of self is blinking in and out of existence all the time for everybody, whether they learn to meditate or not, and it's only someone who learns to meditate who just notices it or can produce that blinking on demand by paying attention to this thing we're calling I. It's analogous to, I mean, change blindness is a great example. I think perhaps a better example based on just its ever-present quality in our lives is a visual saccade, so you know, people don't really notice that when they're moving their eyes all around continuously, their vision is being interrupted by every moment of moving because the, the brain has learned, for evolutionary reasons, not to take in information during the the moving phase of eye travel because uh, you know, you'd have this experience of the world lurching around every moment that you move your eyes, so. We're functionally blind in those moments, and those moments are occurring all the time. And in some sense, I think we are experiencing saccades of self moment by moment and just not coding them as interruptions in in the continuity of self. Whether the same thing could be said for consciousness, I don't know, but even that seems like a possibility. Mm, Yeah, it's very interesting. I hadn't thought about
1: internal saccades, but yeah, you might be right.
0: Let's move on to, and this has been a a marathon conversation for which I'm quite grateful because it's all fascinating. Let's finally, before your the rest of your life and your various (laughs) states of self can commence in other contexts, let's touch this topic of AI, which has become you know fascinating to me and many other people. I think you and I have slightly different intuitions about the prospects of building uh, conscious AI and. I've heard you say a few things that sounded fairly skeptical on that topic. First, we should distinguish consciousness from intelligence, because obviously they're different. Perhaps you want to start there, and then give me your take on AI.
1: That's a good place to start. Uh, it's often, I think, too frequently assumed that, not that it's the same thing, but that a sufficiently intelligent system will at some point develop consciousness, uh, that one is you know, naturally follows the other. Intelligence and artificial intelligence is doing the right thing at the right time. I think it's as simple as that. It's, it's efficient, adaptive action selection. Um, and AI is making great strides at the moment. Consciousness, as we discussed right at the beginning, is this question of the instantiation of phenomenal properties. Is there something it is like to be you or me or a machine? And these uh, almost certainly...
0: Related, but they're certainly not the same thing at all. But well put that way, they obviously break apart because. So, if intelligence is doing the right thing at the right time, and consciousness is the fact that it's, it's like something to do the right or the wrong thing at any time. I mean, we, we, you can be conscious of canonically stupid moves as well as you can be conscious of smart ones. Let's just linger on this fundamental point. A lot of people seem to assume. This is really coming at at your zombie doubts from the other side. If we built anything that was at human level intelligence, no matter how different from a human it might be in its actual hardware implementation, consciousness just by definition will have to come along for the ride because it would be impossible to make something as functionally intelligent as a human being that wouldn't also be conscious. Is it safe to assume that you... Would believe that because you're so skeptical of a zombie argument?
1: I no, actually. I, I, unless it was completely because the zombie argument turns on fund, completely functionally indistinguishable. and I think the case of general AI does not mean that it has to be completely functionally indistinguishable for, from a human being. Um, yeah, I can imagine does general AI, the, the holy grail of artificial intelligence, not just being able to play go very well is to have the general functional capabilities of a, of a human being. In Nowhere in that is it assumed that uh, it's completely indistinguishable from a human being. So I don't think it's that relevant to the zombie argument. And I also don't think it's safe assumption that in order to reach that level of, of general AI, that the system would need to be conscious. I think it's, it's an open question, but I think it comes down to this pre-theoretical association of intelligence with consciousness, which in turn traces to, I think, this pernicious anthropocentrism that we think we're intelligent and we're conscious, so we think the two things have to go together. But from another perspective, you know, the, the most important, ethically important and biologically important conscious experiences have got pretty much nothing to do with intelligence. They have to do, again, with physiological integrity, with suffering, with fear, uh, with, with disgust. Um, and what are the necessary and sufficient components of a system to have those kinds of conscious experiences? I don't think you have to be that smart. I mean, you, you look at the distribution we talked about earlier. What do we think the distribution of conscious states in non-human animals is? And the ethically relevant question there is, what animals are capable of suffering? And I think all intelligence brings to the picture is the ability to suffer in ever increasing, the weird ways. As I said earlier, I can suffer from uh, things I haven't even done through experiencing anticipatory regret. It's unlikely that a bacterium, or probably unlikely that that a bee will experience anticipatory regret. There have been experiments about whether rats can. Distinguish between regret and disappointment, uh, which are quite fascinating. But the point here is that intelligence, I think, is a is a bad criterion for assessing whether something is conscious, whether it's a non human animal, or whether it's a a robot, or whether it's you know the next iteration of AlphaGo.
0: Yeah, no, I I would fully agree there. And I'm for me, the the scariest possibility is that we will build superhuman AI that is not conscious and it will destroy us because we build it badly and that that would be to turn the lights out on earth or at least the human level lights out on earth and it would be no comfort at all to know that what remains is more intelligent than we are the only ethically interesting thing would be if it were actually more important than us on the level of what it can experience if there's a silver lining to being destroyed by your artifacts, it could only be found in the fact that if you've actually given rise to something that is ethically more important than you are, and the criterion for that would be, just as you said, that it would experience a wider range of more beautiful, more creative, more insightful conscious states, and have possibilities of suffering that it wouldn't experience, so that it would be you know it'd be important that these machines be built well and not be built in such a way as to be merely miserable.
1: <laughs> that's that's right, yeah. I mean that, I think that that that's absolutely right. this exactly where we started, that without consciousness, there is no meaning to anything, and um, we could argue whether actually conscious experiences in general for most creatures and most species are characterized by an oversupply of suffering compared to beauty, in which case. Maybe ethically, it's not a bad thing if we have non-conscious successes, but I still kind of lurch away from that prospect in the hope that there is a a point in the space of future possibilities that allows for conscious experiences that are not overwhelmingly characterized by suffering.
0: I think it was in your TED Talk you said some things about the necessity of Intelligent systems being alive and having bodies for consciousness. And I, I, that struck me as counterintuitive here, because, I mean, I, I don't imagine you're saying that there's something especially important about being made of meat in order to be conscious. You can imagine replacing individual neurons in the human brain with their functional equivalents, that are not made of meat, and just doing that enough. We kind of run into a Theseus's ship example here where you, you we replace all the parts, but they have all of the same functional characteristics. Has consciousness disappeared? Because now, you know, most or all of your brain is silicon. Probably less controversial than that. Just imagine you're a human being now with your conscious experience, but we change all of your inputs into your brain. Your brain is unchanged. Your brain is still the wetware as you know it, but we've just replaced all of the inputs with, you know, you now have silicon motor neurons. Everything that terminates on your cortex is now artificial, but the functional equivalent. So essentially, you're a brain in a vat. I don't think you would assume consciousness would go out under those conditions, would you?
1: In the second condition, no. But then one would have to ask what if the system had never been alive in the first place? With, with the first scenario about the replacing neurons with their functional equivalent, I actually, I am left very ambivalent about that. I'm not sure functionalism is a safe assumption. And I think indeed, if one does replace neurons bit by bit with, um, with their functional equivalents, firstly, uh, skeptical of that kind of, argument. It's the sororities paradox, I think. You, know, you, you just you don't know. It's difficult to, to generate a reasonable intuition about the cumulative effect of a lot of small changes. And, and it seems perfectly consist- plausible to me that consciousness would fade, and also that we wouldn't notice it fading because of, again, perception of change being different from the, from the change of perception.
0: But what not the information integration argument implicitly functional? Provided that all of these new neurons have the same information inputs and outputs and integrate in the same way with one another, what remains to be conserved?
1: Yeah, I mean, from IIT point of view, actually, it's a very specific kind of functionalism. So IIT would would distinct if you just replace the each neuron with a functional equivalent and they're all connected up the same way, then I think IIT would say. Yeah, it's going to be conscious in the same way. But if you just replicate the whole input-output structure with a different kind of functional equivalent that had a different causal mechanism that was a feed-forward network of some enormous depth and complexity, then IIT would say it's not conscious. IIT makes a claim not only about the input-output relations, which is characteristic of functionalism, but also about the causal mechanisms that give rise to that functional profile, but it is substrate independent. You don't have to be made out of meat. So, so that's true for IIT. I mean, why do, yeah, why do I think life is is so important? In a way, it's a bit of a challenge to this. This, I think a little bit lazy assumption that it's all to do with information processing and functionalism. I mean, that's that's just an assumption. And I think it's got a lot to do with our fondness for the latest uh, or the most recent technological innovation as a metaphor. We think we have computers, they do smart things. So with some kind of computer and information processing is what matters. I don't think that's remotely um, obvious uh, at all. And it also depends on what you mean by information, as we describe when talking about information theory, many different kinds of ways of thinking about information. The story about life is, is, is simply more that uh, it's back to this idea of what brains are ultimately for, and they're ultimately for the maintenance of the organism in the state of being alive. And then from being alive and the importance of maintaining that state, you can start to derive mechanistic constraints on perception and on action uh, that then can map to phenomenological experiences of one sort or another, starting with the experience of things like suffering and, and so on, that have to do with, with uh, challenges to that state of adaptive allostatic regulation. So it seems to me that, that one is never going to, to find the right path to experiences of certainly of self and of this core sense of embodied selfhood, unless there is an organismic context there that needs to be proactively preserved. And then that might apply more generally to conscious experiences to the extent that we start to understand you know, my visual experience of the outside world as deriving from these fundamental imperatives of staying alive that have shaped the brain's predictive mechanisms.
0: But wouldn't it really, wouldn't it have to be just a matter of the functional and structural integration of the system at any time point? So for instance, if we could copy you perfectly, you know, let's say we, we've mastered nanotechnology and we know exactly how to take all of the carbon and nitrogen and everything else in, in a human body and assemble it, at will, and so we can make perfect copies of a person just like yourself down to every receptor and every charge in your brain. So we now, we now copy you, but obviously this new thing, this new person, as a matter of its history, has not grown up as, you know, an integrated system in the midst of an environment. It was just cobbled together one second ago by little nanobots out of fundamental elements. Wouldn't you expect, if in fact it's an exact copy of you, again, exact, wouldn't you expect it to have exactly the experience you are having at this moment and be just as conscious?
1: Yes, absolutely. I would. I think that's just a statement of materialism. I mean, if, if, it's exact, <laughs> if it's the same thing, exactly, then yes. And I think that's, that's definitely true. Of course, it's then going to diverge and, and, and start to inhabit a, a distinct, different, experience of selfhood. But yeah, at that time, the, the conscious experience associated with, with a physical system, at any point, I think at least, is determined by the state
0: of that system at that time. But So then we are just talking about atoms in the right arrangement. So that certainly closes the door to any significance we would put on the history of the thing and how it has grown up, embodied, In the world, well, it shows that those things are maybe
1: what you might call diachronically necessary for conscious experiences. That that in order to get a system in that particular state, without making kind of magical assumptions about a future technology that can duplicate me down to the atom, that one has to go through a trajectory of, of being alive in order to get systems that exhibit the structural properties, dynamical properties that are associated with conscious experiences. So I don't think you can get close to all that quickly.
0: Yeah, although on the assumption that we're talking about if substrate independence is in fact the case and you could have the appropriately organized system made of other material or even simulate it, right? It could just be on the hard drive of some supercomputer then you could imagine, even if, you know, diachronically you needed some life course of experience in order to tune up all the relevant variables as a matter, in practice rather than in principle, there could be some version of just doing that across millions of simulated experiments and simulated worlds, and you would wind up with conscious minds in those contexts. Are you skeptical of of that possibility? Yeah, I'm skeptical of that possibility
1: because I think there's a, a lot of clear air between saying the physical state of a system is what matters and saying there's substrate independence or that simulation is, is sufficient. Firstly, it's, it's not clear to me in the only existence proofs of conscious systems that we have, you know, other. Biological organisms and ourselves. What substrate independence really means—it um, it, turns—it seems to turn on again an overzealous application of this hardware-software distinction. That—that you know, that the mind and consciousness is just a matter of getting the functional relations right. It doesn't matter what hardware or wetware you run it on. Uh, but it's unclear whether I can really partition how a biological system like the brain works according to these categories you now what where does the wetware stop and the mindware start given that these things are continually the dynamics of the brain are continually reshaping the structure and the structure is continually reshaping the dynamics it becomes a bit difficult to 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 define what the substrate really is of course if you're willing to say well it's not it's not just capturing the input-output relations, we're going to make an exact physical duplicate, then that's fine. I mean, that, that's, that's an exact copy. That's just then a, a statement about materialism. So I, I don't find it that intuitive to uh, go from making a direct physical replica all the way up to um, simulations and therefore simulations of lots of possible life histories and, and so on and so forth. It's really not clear to me that simulation will ever be sufficient to instantiate um, phenomenal properties. Some people think that it, it really is, but they always have these two opposing ideas in my head when thinking in this way, that, that um, a simulation of a chess-playing person is actually playing chess. They're doing it a different way, but nonetheless, a chess computer plays chess. But a simulation of, uh, of a hurricane inside a big meteorological center, it doesn't get wet and windy inside the computer. We don't expect simulation to instantiate certain properties, and we do expect it to instantiate other properties. And to just assume that consciousness is the kind of thing that can be instantiated through simulation is just to fully take on board functionalism and metaphors of information processing that I think are, are plausible. But I don't think should be taken for
0: granted. Well, what do you think the prospects are that we will lose sight of all of these concerns and even forget why they were at all interesting in the first place, or even ethically consequential, if we build machines which pass the Turing test with flying colors, and we find ourselves in the presence of humanoid robots that seem just as intelligent and aware of. Emotions, both our own and their own, as any person, because we've built them to seem that way. And they will seem conscious because they will seem conscious. And whether or not we actually know that they are, we will helplessly treat them as though they were. I know you're interested in this area because I read the review you, you wrote of the film Ex Machina, which I also liked a lot. It just seemed to me that if you're in, a presence, in the presence of a, a robot, Of that sort, whether we understand how consciousness emerges in the physical universe, we will think a robot like that is conscious because of the way it's appearing to us. And I think we will completely lose sight of the possibility of wondering whether or not it is conscious in the same way that we lose sight of that possibility when interacting with other human beings. Do you think we're just headed toward that world eventually and that building such machines is perhaps easier than understanding? consciousness?
1: Yeah, I think there is a worry there. I think there's actually two separate worries. Of course, the the Turing test was never supposed to be a test of of consciousness. It was supposed to be a test of intelligence, which which gets us back to that that distinction. And it was also operationalized in this very disembodied way, so that a system passes the Turing test if a human observer can't distinguish between the AI and, and a real human. On the basis of disembodied exchanges of, of text. Yeah. Um, so I think the Turing test is, is the right criterion either. Actually, the f- in the film Ex Machina, and it's a, it's a brilliant film, if people haven't seen it, they should really go and see it. It's beautifully made too. There's another test, there's a piece of dialogue in there which is so sharp uh, that um, my friend and, and colleague Murray Shannon, who was an advisor for Ex Machina, he renamed it the Garland test after. Uh, the writer and director Alex Garland and this is this test is and this is this is this is a quote from one of the main characters Nathan in the movie and he's talking about this this robot that certainly behaves as if she is conscious and Nathan the creator says the challenge is to show you that she's a robot and see if you still feel she has consciousness so not to distinguish whether it's conscious or not but but to, to see, it's all, it's in, I think this, there's something that's shared with the Turing test here, which, which is as much as it's a test of the capabilities or properties of the system, it's also a test of the human. What kind of criteria are they using to make that sort of judgment? Um, it's got a beautiful forerunner also in Blade Runner, I think, another of the great AI films, and the Voigt Kampf test. It's about emotional responsiveness and not about intelligence. Something that uh, th- that film intuits is that emotional and embodied bodily states are probably better criteria than things based on intelligence now anyway let's say we get to the stage where we have these things running around i think there are two important concerns here one is uh we certainly don't want to build machines that have the potential to suffer um, and we don't want to risk doing it either even if given that we don't really understand yet what the sufficient conditions are. So we, there's an ethical imperative to not generate more things that can suffer. But a, a kind of more immediate pressing concern might be how interacting with these sorts of devices, what that does to our, our experiences and understanding of what it is to be human. If, if, this, if our in, environment becomes populated, by these devices that behave as if they're conscious but which we might know or assume or believe that they are not conscious in some way what will that do to how we treat other biological organisms who might behave in similar ways are we you know, it's an open question are we going to sort of widen the circle of consciousness the circle of concern because we now have systems that look as if they're conscious or might we even diminish it further, because we now retreat more into our own individual existence of that that we can be sure about. We become more destructively solipsistic. Uh, and I think that's that, that potential for, for dehumanizing, or, or not just humanity, but de, I don't know, there's a word for it probably, but that, that retreat towards the solipsistic self and the, the loss of concern for other creatures. Might be an unintended consequence of the increasing prevalence of AI.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's something that was brought home to me in watching Westworld. I don't know if you're a fan of that show as well. I've seen the first version. I remember, so I haven't seen the the recent
1: one, actually. It's on the list.
0: No, it's on the list, though. Oh, you have to watch it because it's very much like Ex Machina in a way. But the difference is that there's obviously just much more of it. There's a whole season of episodes. But this notion of this theme park where you interact with robots that are indistinguishable from humans, and that part of the fun is to take all kinds of ethical license with them that you can't take with other humans because they're insentient robots, on assumption. So you can rape them and kill them, and and this is what's so great about going to Westworld. What I realized in just merely watching this is that this is just impossible. Westworld would be a as I've said, a, a theme park for psychopaths. And you would have to be a psychopath in order to mistreat something that seemed so human. And you would view other people who could mistreat robots in, in this way, you would view them as psychopaths as well, because it's just it's exactly what you described as the Garland test. I mean, it's whether or not this thing is conscious even if you had good reason to believe that it wasn't because you understood everything about how it was built and about the requisites of consciousness, the fact that it outwardly seemed so conscious and seemed to be suffering and seemed to be made happy by other experiences it would require such a coarsening of your own ethical life in order to behave this way that you either couldn't or you would have to undergo that coarsening. Now, that's right. And of course, the
1: worry is if instead of Just this whole Westworld scenario suddenly being available. What if the path to Westworld is more gradual and less of a lurch, so that you can imagine that it's you don't have to be a psychopath to to start interacting with systems in in these sorts of ways. And maybe we're going to see that in the next ten or twenty years with the development of of sex robots. That's going to happen, Um, and maybe. There's a more gradual process in which the existence of these sorts of opportunities turns people
0: into psychopaths eventually. Do you know Kate Darling? I do not, no. Uh, she was on the podcast, and she focuses on th- very much on this question of robot ethics. And she uh, alerted me to the fact that not only will, will there be sex robots in the near future, there will be child-sized sex robots in the near future for pedophiles. That was uh, quite something to contemplate. Oh good yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that this kind of gradual walk toward not taking human suffering seriously anymore is something that I think we experience in context-dependent ways already. And when you think of the global implications, it is worrying to consider how malleable our experience might be here. I'm thinking of a few local cases where you, you look at It's professionally, like how surgeons and ER doctors need to inure themselves to the moment-to-moment evidence of other people's suffering because they just can't get the job done and if they care very much or if they're moved by that suffering in the normal, empathic way. And I think every parent knows what it's like to understand that the suffering of one's child, the three-year-old that bursts into tears over a toy being lost or breaking, that that suffering is not something that needs to knock you around as much as an adult bursting into tears over something else, and yet that suffering is no less vivid for the child. You can imagine that kind of immunity to the evident pain of seemingly other conscious systems. We could train ourselves to have that more and more, and the life could seem like more and more of a video game where, again, as you said, just more identified with ourselves and everything else becomes more and more like a prop. That's true, but
1: you know, to, just to introduce a note of optimism, at least in recent history, and of course this could will be reversed, that most societies seem to be following a different trajectory, right? That um, we no longer uh, consider people from different races as, as having experiences of suffering that don't count ethically. You know? We don't see them as as, as different I'm, I'm mixed race myself I'm sort of an interesting mixed case for this, and so our circle of ethical concern here seems to have been widening and it's been widening to other animals as well to a certain extent uh so things at least provisionally up to this point, and who knows what will happen next uh seem to have been improving in 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 the way in which we have been able as a society to train our ethics uh. And this, this certainly is not something we should take for granted, though, because, as you said so, so beautifully then, these things are so malleable. And in a, if, if it only takes one or two generations for us to not really be able to understand how our grandparents or their grandparents perceived certain kinds of other people, then in two or three generations' time, what can... Comp- What complete belief systems that we hold and don't feel badly about now are going to be seen as unthinkable then.
0: Yeah, well, when you bring into the picture that all of our virtual interactions with one another, where this no longer becomes face-to-face, or it becomes face-to-face in some other mode, where we're interacting with one another's avatars in more and more compelling VR landscapes, if social media is any guide, or a place like Second Life, where you have people whose avatars are entirely fictional representations of themselves, and you have have grown men pretending to be 12-year-old girls or whatever it is, that, insofar as more culture gets virtualized, and we interact with people online and succumb to different repertoires of behavior that wouldn't be possible face-to-face, but are all too possible online. in the habit of thinking about online interactions, having more and more the character of road rage, where, you know, suddenly it becomes possible to behave in a way that is starkly maladaptive, and the only thing that's allowing you to do it is the fact that you're in a metal box with a pane of glass between you and the person you're interacting with. Caution is, is definitely warranted as we continue to port more of our experience to these different contexts.
1: That's right, and I think you know these issues. Almost, they don't really depend on, on thinking about what the basis of consciousness itself is. I mean, these things are equally important if we just think about how perception, how perceptual and emotional contents are formed, completely independently of the hard problem or, or AI. Just the lessons that we're learning about how perception is dependent on predictions in a very context-dependent and fluid way, should alert us to exactly these kinds of dangers, but exactly also the the opportunities that they afford. And to the extent that we can be in a context where our perceptions and therefore actions are ethically undesirable, well, then there's the equal potential um, that in the right context, we can alter people's perceptions of themselves and of the world so that the ethical value of society as a
0: whole is increased. Yeah. Well, on that note, Let's sign off for a, um, what has been a really enjoyable podcast for me. It's fantastic to meet you virtually in this way and to steal so much of your time. You've been very generous. And just tell people where they can find out more about your work online. Are you on Twitter or do you have a website you want to direct people to?
1: Thanks, Sam. First, just thanks so much for, for, for this podcast and for all you're doing with this podcast as well. I've, I've been listening to a lot of episodes um in the run-up to this and i think what you're doing is is unique incredibly valuable and a a kind of long form of discussion which i just haven't seen anywhere else so so really keep this up i think it's it's brilliant stuff thank you and in terms of people are interested in following up more of the things that i've been doing yes there's a website it's anilseth.com. um you can follow me on twitter too at anilk.seth so that's just first and last name with a k in the middle um, there's various pieces of writing on the website. I am way behind on writing my first uh, proper single author book, which will cover a lot of the issues we've been talking about. But with any luck, it will be coming out in 2019, tentatively called The Presence Chamber. Um, so I'll post updates about that on my website as well. But no, thank you, Sam. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure to really have a time to get into some of these issues. And I've, I've really enjoyed it too. So thank you very much.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. you also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.